0: Slash Awards only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset—hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time! So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under twenty thousand dollars just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience.
2: Visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562 314 4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 192 with my guest, Cheryl Klein. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there. Check it out. You can read blogs. You can uh, take surveys uh, that help us get to know you. You can read how other people filled out surveys, uh, many of them, people revealing their deepest, darkest uh, thoughts and feelings. And um, um I'll be reading some of those uh, later in the uh got some interesting ones uh tonight um, what else you can also support the show at the website um, what did i want to share oh uh don't forget if you are in the l a area um and you're listening to this episode um, on friday september twenty sixth of twenty fourteen uh tonight is uh, a live recording of the podcast at Uh, L.A. PodFest. It's at the Hotel Sofitel. And uh, for more information, you can go to LAPodFest.com. And those of you that live out of town, you can actually watch a live video uh, feed of it um, tonight and up to three weeks after tonight. Um, And the link for that is LAPodFest.com slash live, L-I-V-E. So, in case you didn't know how to spell live... Um, so t- go check that out. And, um, some of the, the proceeds from that, uh, go to the, to uh, our podcast. So it, it helps us. It's, oh, and it's, uh, it's $25, but if you use the promo code Gilmartin, uh, you get five bucks off. Uh, and again, that's, uh, uh, the stream and, and that is also to see the uh, video streams of all the podcasts being recorded there. And there's some amazing podcasts with amazing guests. Um, so you can find out. More at lapodfest.com. All right, let's get to some surveys. This is uh struggle in a sentence a survey filled out by Shannon, and she is uh in her twenties and about her depression. She writes, being surrounded by junk food and laying in bed for days, alternatively, alternatively feeling disgusting and like I'm doing exactly what I deserve. Uh, anxiety. Every new friend I make will only last a few minutes before discovering that I'm an awkward, horrible fraud. By the way, many, many people feel that way. <laughs> about you. About you, Shannon. No, uh, many people feel that way about, uh, about themselves and, and what they think their friends think of them. Yeah, I sometimes when I leave a room, I'm afraid people are talking about me, which is kind of alternately low self-esteem and at the same time high self-esteem, like I'm that important. A snapshot from her life, practically begging my mother to go back to therapy and telling her to Google low-cost therapy to find help, only to have her tell me she tried and couldn't find any. Then I Google it myself in her area and find countless results, but I'm too exhausted from years of her never, never helping herself to even send her the links. And the reason I wanted to read this one, Shannon, is because it's with somebody that doesn't want to help themselves I think the healthiest thing you can do is begin to set boundaries with them and say you know um I I I get exhausted um when I deal with you or you know maybe there's a better way to phrase it but um just like uh, there's a person I know who every time I would talk to him on the phone would talk about his depression and how life wasn't worth living. And I would encourage him to go see a psychiatrist and he would say, no, I don't want to be put on meds. And I finally had to say, well, then we can't talk about this subject anymore because it's just um, it's it's uh, it's not fair. It's not fair um, to 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 do that. And it sounds like that's that might be the. Uh, the case with your mom, but, um, it's a tough, it's a tough situation to be in because you want to be there for them, but you also don't want to enable, um, them wallowing in self-pity and not wanting to, um, reach out for help. All right. Um, or maybe she doesn't even recognize that she's, uh, there's something about her that's toxic. All right, Uh, this next one is this was filled out as an awful moment, but I feel like more like this is a struggle and a snapshot from um, uh, Violet's life from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and she's in her 20s, and she writes, When I was 13, I'd been cutting myself for a year. I started on my arms, but out of fear of being found out, I started cutting my legs and thighs. I'd forgotten after cutting one night that I had gym class the next day and had to wear shorts. I put them on anyway and sat down on the gym floor and just figured I would be as ignored as I felt I was. Blood was dripping from some of the cuts, and a few kids were staring at me, but I remember feeling totally apathetic about the whole thing. The gym teacher looked at me, disgusted and shocked, and told me to go to the nurse. When I got to the nurse's office, she looked at my legs and said, almost smugly, You know I know how those got there, right? I almost wanted to laugh. I didn't say anything. What could I say to that remark? What was worse was when my father came to pick me up from school and take me to the psychiatric hospital. He said nothing but, Mom will be home soon. Not that he was sorry for me, not questioning what made me want to hurt myself, not even I love you or I would have settled for an I care about you. The whole situation eventually led to me getting into therapy, and the funny part was even uh, through all that, I still got no emotional support from Dad. My mom would talk to my therapist and seemed uncomfortable talking to me, but made some effort. My dad never said anything to me about it to this day and never took me to therapy. I learned then that adults were either sarcastic and dismissive or emotionally vacant and that I should continue to keep my darkest fears inside me. Well, hopefully now, and I'm so sorry you had to go through that, Violet, but hopefully now you realize that there are m- tons of adults that are um, present and uh, emotionally available and vulnerable and helpful. Um, but it fucking sucks that you had parents that um, couldn't see that you were in pain. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Adam, uh, marine and low-esteem veteran. Um, he is in his 20s. And, um, if I forget to say it, Adam, um, if you get to the LA area, please contact me because I would love to record. Or if you know any other vets, um, in the LA area, um, I'm always looking to talk to, uh, to vets, especially ones who've experienced combat, uh, about his depression. He writes, always believing I will never be good enough and hating myself for it. Um, anxiety, whatever I do or say in public will be noticed, judged, and remembered by everyone forever. Alcoholism and Drug Addiction. Ending my alcohol abuse made me realize I have yet to know what self-confidence feels like and that my experiences in Afghanistan will be with me forever. Like a horrible arranged marriage that cannot be divorced, for better or for worse, till death do us part. Um, Compulsive behaviors, constantly feeling unworthy and comparing myself to others. Even when it comes to talking about my problems, I will convince myself that I am just weak, and my problems are not severe enough to seek help. I fear that I will not seek help until my life has fallen apart. By the way, um, uh, you should listen to the episode, Adam, if you're listening, uh, with Aparna and Shirla, um, who struggles with that exact same thing. She doesn't have PTSD, and you know, um, but she struggles with feeling unworthy and, and constantly comparing herself to others. About his PTSD, he writes, As a Marine in Afghanistan, I lived by the uh, mantra-slash-slogan, Complacency kills. It was in my head every day. It has never left and has remained my way of thinking, even after getting out of the Marines in 2010. I cannot relax, because if I do, shit will hit the fan. Uh, About being an abuser, he writes, Not sure this counts, but I abuse myself, mentally and emotionally, on a daily basis. Um, anger issues if you give me a compliment it is most likely out of pity and you probably think I am too dumb to realize it <laughs> oh my god I have that all the time when somebody compliments me I just think you're either bullshitting me or you just don't know um, I that that's not completely true I am able to take some some compliments in but I think a lot of people that that sentence that uh, Adam just wrote really rung their bell um, and other issues, he writes, my low self-esteem and anxiety have prevented me from ever having a romantic relationship. At 26 years, I have already given up on the possibility of finding love. Um. And then, uh, he, yeah, and he requests a guest who has combat-related PTSD, preferably from the Marine Corps, if you've not had uh, someone already. We did have uh, a Green Beret on uh, Robert Patrick Lewis. If you haven't listened to that one, um, you might listen to that. Uh, He says, the reason why I believe a veteran from the Marine Corps would be preferable and possibly helpful for a lot of people and veterans is because the culture and attitude of Marines is heavily based on pride, strength, and masculinity, um, and for women, self-reliance, which can make it very difficult for many Marines and other service members like myself to seek help. Um, And, uh, oh, he he writes this too, which I want to share. He says, I've been listening to the show for a few months now, and it's been very helpful, and then I no longer feel as alone as I used to. It's helped inspire me to seek psychiatric help from the VA, which I've been putting off for years. That warms my heart that you are getting help and I'm, I'm so sorry that you're that you're struggling. Um, but it sounds like you're, you're moving in the right direction. Um, this is Struggle in a Sentence filled out by Flux, she calls herself. She is um, a teenager and uh, she's from Sweden and about her depression, she writes the good old bell jar, like I'm cut off from the world, alienation about her anxiety. Constant, raging bees in my entire body. My shoulder muscles are always rock hard from me being tense all the time. Uh, Snapshot from her life. Uh, I'm 13 and my dad wants me to go to a party with him as I'm feeling really bad. Uh, Mentally, he knows I struggle with depression. I don't want to go. I know my anxiety will get worse when I get there. We get in a fight, and he starts yelling at me. When I'm sitting on a kitchen chair bawling my eyes out because he can't understand that if I go to the fucking party, I will die. And my body aches with anxiety, and I'm seriously contemplating suicide. And he says to me, stop acting like a wounded swan. And then about her bulimia, she writes... And I'm not sure I even understand this, but uh, I I have to read it because it just, uh, I tried once but did not have the gag reflex for it. As I looked at the toilet bowl bubbling with my saliva, I thought to myself, I will make some man very happy one day.
0: Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Cried like an animal. It Makes me so mad at myself that I do that.
2: The burden of perfectionism.
0: And that's when I got into therapy.
2: Let's talk about that. So I was like,
1: fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything.
2: You are a shining example of what is best about human beings.
1: I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Like. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm here with Cheryl Klein, who is, um, you're originally from Canada. Uh, no. No?
1: I, I got married in Canada. Oh, Maybe. you got married <laughs> in Canada.
2: Because I was going to ask you when you came out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, you. Um, it, it's funny. I Actually, a lot of people, I, I've mentioned getting married in Vancouver, and yeah. people have been like, oh, you're Canadian, right? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's just oh. gay marriage. It's legal there.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, congratulations on uh, on doing that. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh you had emailed me and some of the stuff, the broad strokes uh you had shared with me uh, made me think, well let's let's record something. Um you are a warrior and you come from a long line of warriors. Yes. Uh, is your family crest a knitted brow?
1: Um it should be. It's funny because at first I thought you said you are a warrior and I was like, mm, I don't know about that. So <laughs> you, wor- Paul. Yeah, thank you. Um <laughs> Warriors definitely, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um describe it sounds like um there from your email there wasn't a tremendous amount of like trauma or stuff in childhood unless I'm I'm missing out on no, something. Um okay.
1: I, I had a very um a very loving and stable childhood. Um both of my parents, their childhoods were a little less stable, so I think they almost obsessively tried to provide a really stable childhood for my sister and I um my my mom's dad was an alcoholic and he was always moving their family around mostly around southern california to try to start over and and you know find the magic solution in the house like one town away and um she was a shy kid and that was really traumatizing for her and um my my dad grew up with a Um, single mother, his dad died when he was very young. And, um, you know, they were always struggling with money and things like that. So, um, but I always, so I I think I always have, like, a lot of, like, shame over, like, problems that I've had because I'm like, but they were so nice to me. Um, But, you know, I think sometimes what you don't, when you have a really loving, stable childhood is you you don't always – know your own resiliency or mm-hmm.
2: or get a chance to discover it. Well, let, let me ask you this question. You know, having a large amount of anxiety in your family, um, can you technically call that stable? <laughs> that doesn't mean there wasn't love in your family. Right. I think there can be love, but maybe a lack of stability because uh, sometimes outside circumstances could be, you know, maybe both parents got sick or you know whatever mm-hmm. um so that's just kind of my my take on the on the word st- stability
1: yeah that that's a good a good point cuz i think you can have situational stability while having kind of emotional instability yeah cuz it feels like oh there's always this kind of fear lingering
2: yeah and that feeling of of being safe that I think kids need, it's such an important thing because I think it's the template for then how you see the world outside of that. And it sounds from what you shared with me, um, what it, what it was like for you. When do you remember first feeling like the world wasn't maybe a safe place or that you were a worrier more than other people?
1: Mm. You know, I remember... From a really young age, the way that my anxiety would manifest is, it was like usually late at night. um, And it honestly, it took me until like two years ago to figure out that, you know, maybe that's just not a good time of day for me to like, you know, address serious issues. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, you know, I remember... um, I remember, like, lying in bed late at night and having kind of obsessive thoughts, and my, my mom would come to say goodnight, and I would be like, Mom, do you think I'm normal? And, you know, I would have kind of a rotating list of reasons I thought I might not be, and she was always said, you know, she's always really reassuring and said, Yes, I think you're perfectly normal. And um, But
2: then she'd roll her eyes.
1: <laughs> a little bit, in a friendly way. I'm sure she just wanted to go to bed. Um, and, and I kind of always just thought she was humoring me, you know, like, oh, we know that I'm like this crazy weirdo and eventually that will emerge. So, um, and uh, then I think. What were
2: some of the crazy racing thoughts?
1: Um, gosh, I remember.
2: And what age are we talking?
1: Um, you know, I, I think probably like. Sometime in elementary school is the the earliest that mm-hmm. I remember kind of like having sort of obsessive worrying thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, probably by the time that I was like, 11, I think I had an inkling that I was gay. And, you know, that was the mid to late 80s. And so, you know, it was a time where like, there were just starting to be like gay characters on TV, or like, there'd be a very special episode or something. And all I knew that was that watching those made me really anxious. how, Um,
2: How are they going to be portrayed? How are people going to react to seeing them?
1: Yeah, kind of like, I, I also had a lot of, like, worries about puberty, too. That was a big, like, am I a freak? Am I abnormal? My mom tried to... to. So I remember there was, like, a very special episode of Roseanne where Darlene got her period, and everybody was wondering, like, why is Darlene acting so funny? And I somehow knew. I'm like, it's because she got her period. And then it was. And I was just like, Oh, this is so humiliating. Like this, this acknowledgement of an adolescent girl getting her period. And it seems so sweet and funny now. But it was really had had
2: you gotten your period yet?
1: You know, I can't remember if at that point I had or like, I was, you know, rapidly approaching I think I had actually, I got my period when I was um, 11, which is, you know, just slightly earlier than average. Mm -hmm. But My mom had gotten hers at like nine, which is really young. Wow. Um, And so I think she had tried to prepare me from a very young age, from like eight or nine, that like, oh, this is what happens, and it's normal, and it'll happen to you. And it it just seemed like the worst possible thing because I think growing up never sounded very appealing to me. I I sort of wanted to be a like some kind of child prodigy. Mm. That would that would have been my preferred life goal
2: well isn't also uh when girls get their periods uh, initially isn't it aren't like the the cramps and the flow as like monstrous
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i did ha- i remember having really when i finally did get my period i remember we were on a family vacation we were in our 1979 four-star motor home um which was always how we traveled um again, like a lot of consistency in my Mm -hmm. childhood. So we took one kind of vacation and it was like road trip in California in our motor home. And, um, and somehow I was like the kid who never missed a day of school, but then immediately when we went on vacation, I would get sick, which I'm sure my parents loved. Um, And I remember like having really bad cramps and starting my period and like I knew what had happened and just like sitting up in the cab of the motorhome driving and like bawling my eyes out because I was like, this is the end. I'll never be an Olympic gymnast now, Um, you know, as if that was as if. Things were totally led, leading in that direction. Were otherwise. you into
2: gymnastics at that point? I
1: did gymnastics, but I did it at the local parks and recreation, okay. and
2: which is usually the next step to the Olympics. Yeah,
1: like there are a couple in between steps that sure. I hadn't really. You're an extrapolator,
2: huh? Yes, I, and I think most worriers are. I think that's where the worst worry. Uh, resides. And I was just thinking about that on the way over here. It's like when I have the best days, it's because I just focus on the day. It's like, we don't plan what we're going to eat in March. So why would we plan, you know, that what our day is going to be like, you know, nine months from now? Yeah. And I think there's a difference between having goals and worrying. If you're going to set a goal, what you can do, I've been told since (laughs) I always fail mine, Um, is that you can break it down into the smallest increments possible. And then you can say, what is, what can I do today to work towards that goal and let go of the future tripping about whether or not that goal is going to work out, um, But I I think so much of our time is wasted extrapolating based on how we feel today or how today went or how somebody treated us um, and extrapolating that that is how successful or loved we're going to be in the future.
1: Yeah, I go from zero to doom very quickly and often the people who care about me have to sort of pull me back from that. Um, But I, you know, I'm a I'm a fiction writer as, as my non day job and. I I often think that some of the processes I have related to writing are so much healthier than in the rest of my life, and if I could apply those, you know, like my my goals, my writing goals are always like process-related goals, like write for an hour today, and then I'll do that, and you know, sometimes it'll go well, and sometimes not so well, and I usually feel okay about it either way, and I'm like, why can't I just, you know, apply that everywhere
2: else? Do you have an addictive personality?
1: I think that I do. I mean, I've never, I've never struggled with, um, like substance abuse or alcoholism. Um, partly because I do have a family history of it. And, and, you know, I think the D.A.R.E. program successfully scared me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you were the one. I
1: was the one. Yeah. I was the one who was like, oh my God, that, that party where someone's gonna like, you know, offer me drugs or <laughs> okay. anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean I've I've had some I've had some food issues. Um I mean I think I still do mentally although not too much like in practice. So, yeah.
2: Are you a, a fixer or a people pleaser?
1: Um I'm definitely a people pleaser. I mean less so. Like I'm getting away mm-hmm. from that a bit. Um I'm not too much of a fixer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I I'm kind of a recovering perfectionist and sometimes i think that'll sort of bleed into
2: mm-hmm. trying
1: to fix people things.
2: i think people pleasing worrying and perfectionism are very i think they're they're definitely first cousins yeah uh, any snapshots from so you had anxiety about uh, puberty and that ending and extrapolating what but your life was going to be yeah. once your childhood was ending and stuff like that a lot of worrying in the house um any other snapshots from childhood before we get into the hypochondria
1: well, you know, since since you often ask people for snapshots from childhood, I was sort of thinking about that on the drive over. And the first thing that came to my mind is, like, one of my earlier memories is of um, driving in our – we had a little, like, two-seater Datsun pickup truck. And um, I remember pro- probably when I was about um, – I must have been about five, um, and my sister was two – And um, my mom, this, I guess, was the days before car seats everywhere. Um, But my mom said, oh, let's put Kathy in the middle. I don't want her to, like, open the door and fall out. And um, in my mind, like, the reason for that was because, well, you know, she's younger. If I open the door and fall out, like, I've had more of a chance at life. It's only only fair. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, it was... Like, I sort of accepted that. And, you know, it was only years later that my mom, I told that to my mom, and she was like, no, that's because you were old enough to not open the door. Like, you could sort of, so, I- and I do think that that kind of like is a little bit representative of, even though it
2: was just this, Kind of crazy kid logic thing. You, you are you are drawn to the dark, yeah. and the negative, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yet you're such a seemingly uh, positive person, and I would imagine a lot of that is attributed to the work that you've done on yourself and the fact that you have a lot of meaning and purpose in your in your life, which we'll get to uh, later. But um, I always like it when people who are um, outwardly positive and, and genuinely outwardly positive um, either deal with that battle of the, the darkness and the negativity, or had a, a, a history of it. Um, so what, when do you remember the hypochondria? Uh, oh, give, well, give me some other snapshots.
1: Um, let's see other snapshots. Um, when I was in eighth grade, girls could try out for a drill team, which was sort of the entry level cheerleading. And, you know, I had taken dance classes that year. I'd done gymnastics when I was younger. Um, and I worked really hard the whole week of tryouts. you like go to the high school and learn this dance routine that you then do for a panel of unqualified judges. And, um, and all of my friends made this squad, including the one who um, didn't even decide that she wanted to try out until halfway through the week. She just had this photographic Aww. memory for choreography. Aww. And I was devastated. I am
2: feeling your pain right now. <laughs> I am feeling it. That That is like turbo ostracism.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that speaks to your capacity for empathy because I think that they're probably um, – one of my more shameful moments from high school is when I later – once I did make drill team, my second year that I tried out – I wrote a college essay using Langston Hughes's Dream Deferred poem to talk about how my dream of being on drill team was deferred. So, you know, racism, not making (laughs) drill team, totally the same struggle. Both
2: as important. Yes. Both as important. You know, I always, when I fail at something or, um, you know, friends of mine all get cast in a movie and I don't – which is easy since I've never been cast. <laughs> but, uh, I always think, you know, Michael Jordan got cut his sophomore year of high school from from his basketball team. He didn't know team. that. He did. Um, and it just you never know. You never know what route it's going to take. What was it like having the secret of knowing that you were gay being uh around, you know, a, a close knit group of. Of cheerleaders did that cause you anxiety was what was their opinion of of gay people
1: um you know i I think at that point knowing i mean i knew on one level on another level i definitely didn't know you know it was i i think and i think that was self-protective i think i would have been kind of suicidal if i if i had known did Um, you
2: just think that you were a little different or these thoughts and feelings were fleeting
1: I sort of I would rationalize it like I you know it wasn't even that I necessarily I mean I think I knew there were girls that I were, was attracted to but I I didn't necessarily even have like super strong crushes I would just have I think for women in particular because even straight women have these really intense friendships it's very with women emotionally a lot of times. based too yeah. That you know there was there was sufficient gray area there. Um, so I think it was mostly just a feeling of like, I'm somehow weird and bad. I just don't know how yet. And you know, actually, this is a little bit of a tangent, but one of the things I really like about your show is that you've talked to different people about worrying that they might be child molesters or something. Um, which isn't something it's such a taboo and you don't really hear people talk about it like it's sort of like oh you if that thought even crossed your mind mm-hmm. y- you should go to jail kind yeah. of thing um, but the town that I grew up in in Manhattan Beach just south of Los Angeles is um, the town where the McMartin uh, child molestation trials took place um, and that was I didn't go to McMartin preschool, but I was of the generation who you know, I was, my peers did kids that I went to elementary school with later. And um, you know, my parents were pretty rational and thought it was a witch hunt from the start. Which it was. Which it was. And um, but I think that that planted a seed where like, oh, this is like a bad thing that people do. And like, maybe maybe that's what I am. You know, Um, and I want to say it for the record that I'm not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um, it was, you know, that like that was one of the like, oh, maybe this is the way that I'm a weirdo. Um,
2: And then... Are you saying that because you had thoughts or you would just, in your darkness, you would go, what's a bad thing that people are? Maybe I'm that? I think it was,
1: it's mostly the latter. I mean, I think I did, I had like like, sexual fantasies about, like, bondage and things like that that I felt, like, weren't appropriately vanilla. So I I sort of, like, lumped all perversities together in my
2: head. And at what age are we talking about? Like,
1: like fairly young. I mean, probably, like, early high school, I guess.
2: Um, I have talked to um, some listeners, uh, mostly female, who's... Uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, bondage uh, fantasies, Um, before they were, before they had sexual thoughts, it was, like, one of them shared with me that she used to fantasize about a neighbor boy grabbing her by the hair and pulling her down the stairs, and she would become aroused. And she didn't know that that's what... Was happening. That the feeling was something that was called a sexual feeling or whatever. So... um, I think it's so common. Yeah. I think it's so common. Um so let's pick up on the on the thread we were talking about yeah. before which was how you felt about your sexuality as as you were um getting into this intimate setting as a as a teenager. So you seemed to be okay with it. It wasn't that conscious of a of a thing. Um what are what are some other um some snapshots, unless there's more that you wanted to to share on that um, about feeling like no,
1: weird. I, th- I think that that's, um, I mean I, I think that like a lot of what I sometimes forget uh, that was actually kind of not so much a snapshot but maybe like a theme in my childhood it was just bickering with my sister like crazy.
2: Um, she was older or younger? Yeah, she's three years younger. younger. Okay. Yeah, the one you pushed out of the car.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's I. I sometimes still like will have dreams where I'm just punching her like crazy, and you know, even during times where like we've had no conflict mm-hmm. that I'm conscious of at all, I think there's just this residual like. It, my therapist would say there's just a lot of like, when I was a kid. The new baby came and sort of replaced me and it hit me at a, like, you know, developmentally sensitive time. And, um, you know, my, my sister had, um, like, her, her legs had like slightly malformed when she was um, in the womb. And so for a little while, when she was a baby, she had casts on her legs um, to straighten them out. And, you know, she was fine after that and still is um but i think it was kind of a big deal for me i think you it kind probably of, got a
2: lot of attention too yeah. because of that and extra care
1: yeah i think so and um even though it made my mom self-conscious like oh people must think i just dropped my kid down the stairs you know <laughs>
2: you know it would have been funny would have been uh, if, when you were around the the two of them in public is every time your mom moved her arm flinch <laughs> if i'd been smarter <laughs> yeah if i'd been just a little more crafty um there was uh, a guest that we had, listener uh, D, and he has a um, diaper fetish, and he remembers that it came when his brother came home from the hospital and his brother was in diapers and he no longer was, and his brother was getting all the attention, and he wanted to wear a diaper. And that's from...
1: Yeah. I mean, that, it makes sense. It was, yeah. It's so funny how the subconscious works. Yeah.
2: So you're turned on by leg casts. Yeah. What? <laughs> um so, um, I'm sorry. I keep losing this thread, but there's always stuff that I want to. Uh, I feel the the need to to interject. So um, go for it. I'm I'm, I'm so. Um, oh, I did already, but I, I I guess I just want to qualify that I so feel this urge to let people know that they're not alone. That when I find. Two things that are similar between people. I yeah. want to shout and scream and say, "See, see, yeah. it's it's more than it's more than just uh, more than just you." So I apologize to- if I get if I get derailed.
1: No, totally. I I that's what I love about this show.
2: Yeah. Um. So some other some other snapshots. Um. Unless there was a thread that you hadn't
1: finished. Um. No, I think that I think those are those are sort of some key moments that okay. I think of that I, I think that I those are some things that I've been like my devastation over not making drill team and my conflicts with my sister but things that I can now see parallels to like stuff I've dealt with in my adult life yeah yeah and you,
2: and you thought not making the drill team was your life was over yeah that that was where your your popularity was cemented
1: and it was also it also seemed like this grand injustice where i had worked really hard and wanted something really badly and then somebody who hadn't worked hard and didn't want it got it because you know i was really i was raised to believe in meritocracy and i mean it's great to have parents who have a strong sense of justice and equality i think especially coming from My dad, who's a little Asperger's y and I think Mm -hmm. likes rules and like, you know, X plus Y equals what I'm not going to come up with a good math metaphor here, but um, I, you know, it it took me a really long time to understand that, like, that that's kind of this middle class myth that that I think that people Mm who are raised really poorly. Poor and sometimes really rich sort of understand that like you know work with a direct arrow to like benefit mm-hmm. of work doesn't they always should, happen.
2: When they when your parents tell you there's no Santa Claus, they should also tell you that meritocracy is a myth.
1: Well, this is my parents never told me that Santa Claus was real. So out of po- their their sense of like extreme. Like, justice, because they were like, oh, if we lie to you about this... I agree. What else I agree. could we lie to you about?
2: Yeah. I mean, what is the purpose of... Couldn't you say that Santa Claus is a character that we create to help us enjoy Christmas more?
1: That's pretty much exactly what they said. They weren't, like, anti-Santa. Right. But no, yeah. I don't
2: think you have to be. Yeah. I think kids could still enjoy it, just like going to see a play or something else. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, I'd like to see that change cuz I don't know, I just I don't like that.
1: Santa's never been like my favorite holiday character anyway. You know, I feel like the Easter bunny is kind of cooler. You know, it's a bunny that lays eggs. I mean, that seems more interesting than like some old uh, guy. I think
2: that Easter bunny's creepy and fucked up. Yeah. That's pr- the possibly to the too. tooth fairy. I don't want anybody in my bedroom. <laughs> I don't want anybody under my pillow. <laughs> my
1: my partner believed in the tooth fairy long after she knew that Santa wasn't real because like the way that her mom would talk about the tooth fairy, like, Oh, yeah. we, you know, we had breakfast or like one day my partner l- lost a tooth. Um, the, I think it was on mother's day or something. And so, you know, the tooth fairy just sort of forgot to come and, 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 her mom explained it like well you know the tooth fairy is a mother too so she was really busy that day and so my partner felt like oh okay there's you know enough sort of supporting detail around this story sure
2: tooth fairy is probably legit so let's talk about the the hypochondria yeah um when did it become a problem and when did you begin to think maybe this is a mental or emotional issue with me
1: yeah so um I had always had sort of like low level medical anxiety just in that, you know, I'd get kind of nervous before doctor's appointments because it felt like it was a test I couldn't really study for, Um, you know, or the doctor was going to tell me to do something differently. Um, And but but really not in a like any kind of debilitating way um but then my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in um 2000 when i was um 23 and she went through treatment for um about 3 years and then she and went into remission a couple times um and then passed away in 2003 mm, so sorry um, thanks. Yeah, um, today today's actually her. We're re- recording this on her birthday, June twelfth. So I feel like it's a good day to, you know, think about yeah. family and talk about family and stuff. Um, and, you know, after that, I, I grieved a lot, but I didn't have really, I didn't really have significant hypochondria. But I think it sort of that sort of planted the seeds. Um, and then. In 2010, um, my partner and I decided we wanted to try to have kids and um, you know we had you know we we were kind of open to all possibilities. Um, I had always been interested in adopting, um, but she was kind of like, look, you know we've got two uteruses between us. maybe it'll be really easy to get pregnant. Why don't we try that first? And that seemed fine to me. And then I started to get really excited about it. Like I had never had any sort of daydreams or hopes about, like, I'd always wanted to be a parent, but I never necessarily wanted to biologically have kids. But once I put my mind to something, like I really want
2: it. What do you wear when you go sperm hunting?
1: What did I wear? I don't know. But there is a, there's a friendly lesbian owned sperm bank in in Pasadena. So you know the great thing about being in a city like LA is you just go to your friendly na- lesbian owned neighborhood sperm bank.
2: Is it called the Turkey Baster? <laughs> I feel free to stop me at any point. It's <laughs> I'm on a bad joke roll. Today. I
1: would love to go to to a place called the the Turkey Baster. That would be No, they're they're very like pro-woman and embracing and but I think since then we've both turned into to cynics where we're like yeah they talk like you're gonna get pregnant when you go in there like it's a given and um you know what what we were to discover is that it it was not a given um so I we decided like I'm a year and a half younger than my partner so we decided I'd you know give it the first shot and um and you know People were sort of like, oh, you, you um, go running, you're healthy, Like, of course you'll get pregnant right away. Which, in my mind, was like, you're a good person and deserve to get pregnant. So therefore, the f- reverse of that, if I don't get pregnant, I must be a bad person. Like, My subconscious was doing that. I can't now.
2: imagine how many people feel that same way.
1: I think so. I mean, I think people do. I, I think because my experience with infertility has often been so isolating, like my kind of gut wants to be like, no, actually, nobody else feels that way. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> but I I know that's probably not true. Uh,
2: by the way, when I was 10, I was told by a doctor that I will most likely be sterile, which was an odd thing for somebody to mention very offhandedly like you know like you're gonna have the flu for another week
1: how, yeah right yeah. And, and how how does a doctor even know that about a 10 year old uh,
2: because my uh te- testicles hadn't descended and know. uh they ha- i had an operation to to make that happen but i guess by then the Whatever. Yeah. You know, the, and he was pretty right. I had a sperm motility test done about a year ago and basically sterile, but not enough so that a vasectomy was ruled out. So I got a, I got a vasectomy just to be super, super sure. Yeah. um, Well, that's
1: kind of the worst of all worlds then, right? You're like, oh, you get to not be super fertile, but also you don't get out of this surgery. I I
2: have to go through that thing. Awesome. Um, So I I know that feeling of um, feeling defective.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so I had – at the time, I had this great sort of Cadillac health insurance coverage and um, that is, you know, on my lifelong gratitudes list. But so it allowed me to do some – you know, because we're two women and there was never, like, a a period of, like, we'll just let nature take its course and see what happens. Like, I – I think part of what triggered the hypochondria was like, this process became immediately medicalized. So I had some fertility tests um, that showed like, like really the most kind of mild kind of infertility, like, maybe I had a blocked fallopian tube, and my progesterone was slightly below average. And... You know, in the sort of regular heterosexual people who don't beat themselves up world, like that's just means like, okay, you're probably the person who, you know, you're going to try for nine months or a year, year and a half before you get pregnant. But to me, like, I remember that day in 2010. And I was just like devastated, even though that was so the tip of the iceberg of what happened over the next four years. It hit me hard. And looking back, I can know, okay that tapped into something much bigger. Um, So I decided I would do one cycle of IVF. Um, We were still open to adoption and to my partner, um, maybe trying to get pregnant. But my insurance covered a lot of it. Um, Why not give it a try? And, um, so in, uh, like early 2011, um, I, you know, I did the thing where I inject drugs and everything is very precise and closely monitored. So if you have an obsessive compulsive personality, which I do, it really just fuels that it's just, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like, I mean, I was basically just pouring fuel on this fire like um because you go you know the the process of like growing a bunch of eggs and harvesting them and then implanting embryos and being on bed rest for a few days while they try to implant and then tracking your hormones to see if you're pregnant and to see how pregnant you are like all of it is so regimented and i was really good at it because i'm kind of ocd like i i was sort of like i am such a superstar i have no problem like giving myself shots um
2: and if i give this my all it 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 will work out
1: yes yeah
2: Because of this meritocracy.
1: Yes. And if it doesn't work out, then I probably wasn't giving it my all. Um, Or or there's something fundamentally. Yeah, I'm
2: innately an unworthy person.
1: Yeah. So, um, so they always, people always joke like, oh, such and such is like being a little bit pregnant, as if that's like a thing that's impossible to be. But you actually kind of can be a little bit pregnant um, because the hormone. I think it's called HCG. I, I've actually sort of mentally blocked out some of the things that were part of my daily vocabulary for for like a six-month period. But um, they measure your hormone levels. And like on the first blood test that they do, mine came back like low but still indicating pregnancy. Um, so then the question becomes like, will that number double? That's the idea is that you want it to double within a certain amount of days. Um, to show that the the embryo has taken root and is growing. So during that time, I would just obsessively Google signs of pregnancy, signs of, of like statistics about uh, there's a and there's a whole internet community of obsessive oh, women trying I to get bet. pregnant. I bet. So there's I can't like imagine. a a website where you can enter your your hCG numbers at certain days and it'll tell you like of people who had this number on this day, you know, this percentage of them resulted in live births, you know, so so it also like really tapped into like just probabilities, you know, I got really obsessed with statistics and like as if statistics would like reveal my fate to me and my self-worth. I would, so then we were still just following the numbers and then And then I had some bleeding, and I thought, okay, this is it. I'm miscarrying. I went to the doctor. Um, He did an ultrasound and found two heartbeats. And I was really surprised because my hormone numbers had not been high enough for, even though there's a very high probability of fraternal twins in, um, in IVF, there's also, there's Usually your hormone numbers will reflect that, and mine hadn't, so, but he said, what my doctor told me was, oh, well, that's true for fraternal twins, but if you have, because basically what that number shows is the growth of the placenta, so if you have identical twins, you just have, like, regular numbers, so... I found out that I was having identical twins, and he. but he was like, but you're bleeding, go home, stay on bed rest for a few days. So for, I don't know, a period of maybe like a month, I just had this up and down between like bleeding and bed rest. And I. that really shook my sense of safety because I felt like at any minute... I might have to stop what I was doing and go on bed rest. And I didn't know why. In the ultrasounds, um, his he said that he couldn't see two gestational sacs, so he sent me to a specialist. Um, and in the meantime, I, of course, obsessively Googled what happens when you don't have two gestational Sacks, you have something called monoamniotic twins, which is super high risk, and they can be okay. But you know, there is a really high death rate. And I was terrified of, you know, all the things that might happen for a second, we thought maybe they were Siamese twins or conjoined twins, I guess is the the politically correct mm-hmm. term. But I was like, there was a point in the doctor's office where I had this little meltdown where I was like, oh, my God, when I was a kid, I pretended to be Siamese twins.
2: This is the justice for yes. it. Yes.
1: And, you know, my partner had to be like, your thoughts do not cause <laughs> things to happen. Um, anyway, so when I went to the specialist, he did an ultrasound that immediately showed two gestational sacs and we breathed a big sigh of relief and then he said you know the reason that i'm being kind of quiet right now is because i'm not getting any heartbeats anymore and um he wasn't he did not have great bedside manner he was a little like i don't know like i realized in retrospect like how gentle physically and emotionally my regular fertility doctor was And this guy was not as much so. And in my mind, I don't know if this is really true. We were sort of shuffled out the back door of the high-risk pregnancy office, like where they send... They
2: don't want you seeing tears in the lobby. Exactly.
1: Exactly. In the lobby, they just tell you, well, you know, when you have twins, you can apply for disabled plates and you should fill out that paperwork right now. Um, And so, yeah. And then, you know, a couple of days later, I got a DNC. And, you know, that that feels really cruel, you know, to sort of like like I kept calling it an abortion. And my partner was like, don't call it that. It's not. But, you know, I remember like calling Planned Parenthood to see if I, I had this weird thing with my insurance where like they wouldn't pay for it because it happened in a different room of my fertility doctors. Office. Just like the weird shit that insurance has Um, so and that unleashed um, you know probably I guess like three or four months of like the most intense anxiety and depression I've experienced Um, and you know I I wish there was more counseling for I, I wish somebody would hand you like a so you had a miscarriage pamphlet I mean of course there's information online but like you know nobody really said like hey just because you don't have a baby doesn't mean you can't have postpartum depression you know Um, and I think that's really what I had in addition to a lot of grief Um, but it, it took on this like particularly sort of mentally ill component or like it reached this level that I think you know, was beyond, like, the more straightforward grief I'd had after my mom died. Um, And and the form that it took, I'm realizing there's a very long answer to the hypochondria question. But I think, you know, it had been this sort of perfect storm of, like, this intense attention to my body and to tracking things. And to living from medical appointment to medical appointment, that, like, I didn't know how to turn that off. So I just sort of poured all of my grief and anxiety and depression into that. And, you know, my body was going through some kind of weird hormonal things naturally, but I was so hyper aware of everything that, you know, during that time, like, I... I don't know, I guess I had some like mild tingling in my toes, which hormones can prompt, anxiety can prompt, sleeping. Oh, the other thing is I had, this is the main thing, I can't believe I forgot about this because it was like, I mean, that's probably why I forgot about it. But it was like, every night I'd wake up in the middle of the night with my fingers asleep. And it was usually the like my ring finger and my pinky finger which had, you know, periodically happened at other times in my life. But um, um, when it, it was happening every night and I was around this time, I had a, um, a friend, not a super close friend, but like a sort of acquaintance friend who was diagnosed with MS. And I just became obsessed with this idea that I have tingling in my fingers, it must be MS. And I, I diagnosed myself with a lot of things during this time. Like, sure,
2: you, you have access to Google. Why wouldn't you? I know. Why would you limit it to one thing?
1: No, I also was sure that I had, like, neck cancer. And, you know, like, I had people be like, is neck cancer even a thing? It is. And, for it, peop- it is. It is for
2: people who failed drill team.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. For mm. me, it could it could be a thing. I was, I was sure that I had ovarian cancer like my mom did. I, you know, I'd had a history of um, benign breast lumps. And so I had gotten ultrasounds and stuff, but I was sure that like, you know, I had breast cancer. And I guess this is the like, dot, dot, dot foreshadowing part. But um
2: Um, If I can just interject for one second, Um, some great articles have been written by uh, Dr. Jessica Zucker, who is a a guest. She's been a guest on this program twice, and uh, she's written very uh, eloquently about the emotional um, weight of having a miscarriage. Mm. Uh, So uh, search her out uh, online. She blogs uh, for the Huffington Post, Mm. and she can follow it on Twitter at Dr. Zucker. Um, So you could also tweet her and say, Hey, can you post links to your um, articles about this or ask her questions?
1: Oh, that's really great to hear. You know, during that time, my partner kind of encouraged me to find a support group or something. And, you know, I was in therapy um, already. And I, you know, I was just trying to like, take care of things Medically, and I—I mean, the way that I described it to her later was like, you know, it's really hard to kind of like look at a map when you're just trying to keep the car on the road. Mm -hmm. Which is, I guess, that's like the catch twenty two, right? Is sometimes when you need those resources the most is when you're like the least equipped to seek them out. And you know, I I mean, I, I think that you know, like a big lesson I took away from that was like yeah go go find the support you know um find more than you think you need
2: (laughs) because it helps you deal with anything yeah there's there's nothing that can't be uh eased in the long run by uh a good support network nothing yeah nothing i have a friend right now um, who's going through some serious, serious health issues. Uh, he needs a heart transplant. Uh-huh. And um, and he's angry and he's scared, and um, but he's talking about it. And at our support group meetings, he's letting his anger out. He's letting his sadness out. And we're rallying around him, you know, yeah. and we're calling him and we're reminding him that he's loved and he doesn't have to go through this alone and what he's feeling is normal because, you know, sometimes he's feeling... Um, ashamed that he's not handling it like a quote-unquote man. And we keep telling yeah. him, you are handling it like a man because you're being real about your feelings. You're not trying yeah. to do this macho movie bullshit. And um, it looks like it's bringing up emotion in you right now.
1: Well, I just, I feel, I mean, that it's just so true. I I feel like my big takeaway from a really difficult four-year period was that there's really no... I don't know, like, we we live in this society that really, like, rewards people who sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and do it all by themselves. But I think that most of those, first of all, I think most, like, so-called self-made men or self-made people, like, if you scratch below the surface, they had a ton of support and that, you know, mostly independence is, like, kind of bullshit like it's not it's, really something to aim for at
2: least do a lot of loneliness yeah um a lot of being trapped in your head and a lot of successful people if you scratch below the surface um there there is an emptiness beyond what they do for a living yeah and, and i think that the people that are successful and have balanced lives when you scratch below the surface those are the ones that have a, a support yeah. network and they take the time out to care about about other people in a way that's kind of genuine, you know, that's not wearing the mask of caring, which I think a lot of us um, can do. Um, yeah, I can I can fake that mask on some days.
1: The the other thing I, I thought of when you were talking about your friend who who's, you know, has a lot of like, fear and anger about his health problems was, um, so I, I'm my Day job is I'm a, a grant writer for Homeboy Industries, which um, they're provides... awesome. I've
2: I've bought their goods <laughs> at, far, at farmers markets.
1: Yeah, they ha- they have um they have great food and they have job training and wraparound services for former gang members and um, people who've been in prison. And um, you know we had this. A lot of our senior staff, our, our full time professional staff, um, are people who've come up through our job training program, and so are former gang members themselves. And we had a meeting, um, a staff meeting the other day that, um, you know, there were some fairly serious debates about the direction of the organization and um, and stuff was coming up and these, these two guys were, were kind of, you know, taking really different philosophical stances and, you know, both of whom are, are – former gang members who did a lot of time in prison. And like, you know, their their speech starts to become just a little more street than it usually is. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, am I going to sort of see this other side of them that I has always been in the background? And even though they did get more agitated, like they both ended with like, I love you, dog. I love you, dog. <laughs> and I was just like, this is the meaning of life right here. This is like... What it means to like work through your shit and have the tools you need to to deal with more shit and to like still feel love, you know.
2: I, I gotta say, you know, some of my friends in my support groups, you know, tattooed necks, done in prison, mm-hmm. and having a guy like that look me in the eye and say, "I love you," and we hug. It's like if that doesn't, you know. A white boy from the suburbs and a guy from the ghetto sharing that moment, um, yeah. if that doesn't hammer home how much alike we all are in terms of what we feel, yeah um i don't I don't know what it does, what does, and those are the moments where all of my problems fall away, and I'm like, I can live in today, I can live in this moment right yeah. here, I feel. Absolutely. I feel safe. Yeah. I yeah. feel safe. Um so let's talk about that. Let's 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 get to something cheery. Let's talk about the breast cancer.
1: All right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um in I guess it was like early summer of 2011, like my depression anxiety was I think like hormonally starting to ease up a little bit, but at that time I was also like I mean, it had gotten to the point where I remember, because I had googled the symptoms of MS, and one of them was vision changes. Suddenly, I just started to question everything I saw, like, I would look at streetlights and be like, are you supposed to see the beams coming out like that? Like, I've never had an official panic attack, but it sort of felt like a slow motion panic attack. It sounds me.
2: like it. I mean, it sounds like, like your brain was was warping.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like, I would just look at the wall and be like, does it seem like it's moving because my vision is failing because I have, you know? So I was like, okay, I'm going to like get medicated. Um, so I went on Zoloft and that helped a lot. Um, and then fall... 2011 was pretty good. We had a great vacation to Montana. Um, We signed up to with an adoption agency and activated our profile. And then in spring of 2012, my partner who had been going through grad school to become a therapist, and had sort of I mean, you know, I was not—I was no picnic during that time, and because her, of your
2: hypochondria. Yeah,
1: because I was and you melting been, down. And you
2: hadn't been diagnosed with breast cancer yet. No. And were you melting down just because of the ripples from the miscarriage in your general hypochondria, or was it your your health was generally uh, truly beginning to fail?
1: No, not at all. My health was totally fine.
2: So this is this is all
1: all uh, in my head. Okay. Yeah, I mean. I did have a tumor that was growing at that time. But you didn't know. But I didn't know it. And it wasn't nearly far along enough to actually cause symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, 2012 was when our relationship really kind of hit the skids. And we spent some weeks apart. And we kind of didn't know where things were going. But we worked through it. We had a really good couples counselor whom we'd been seeing for about a year prior. So, it was good to already have some tools. Um and so in summer of two thousand or I guess fall of two thousand twelve, went to a really great writing retreat for three weeks, came back, had sort of was like, Yay, like things are looking up, I managed my anxiety. I had like a what I guess was sort of like a it wasn't a lump, but it was like a kind of like a indentation. Um but I was like, look, I know my history with hypochondria. I know that um, I've had things that are very similar to this before that I've gotten checked out that turned out to be nothing. I'm not. I'm just going to go on this writing retreat and not give myself, not just constantly feel myself up for like. (laughs) I love that you call it that. Yeah, Um, it's like it's the the least sexy feeling oneself uh, up ever. Um, but I had my, like, standard yearly, because I'd had a history of benign lumps, and because I had, like, dense breast tissue, I had uh, my standard checkup in the fall of 2012, like a couple of days after getting back from this this wonderful retreat. and um, And I went and got the ultrasound, and they said, well, let's do a mammogram too. you haven't had a mammogram for a couple of years. And I lost it at that point, even though I didn't, you know, I didn't logically have a reason to believe that just doing a mammogram meant anything. But I started crying. And the rest of that day was kind of a blur. But they after doing the mammogram, they said, there's a couple of things that look like they could be early-stage breast cancer. We don't know for sure, but we want to do a biopsy in two spots. And, I mean, luckily in going to, I think it's the Huntington Breast Center in Pasadena, they do things a lot faster, I think, than than some other places do. So I only had to wait two days, but, you know, it's the longest torture. two days of my torture. life.
2: My wife freaks out between when she gets her pap smear and her results and her mammogram and her results. It's mm-hmm. like, it's torture. It's torture yeah. for her.
1: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the thing ultimately that if I could sort of whittle it down to, the thing that makes me the most anxious is just waiting for test results. Not, kn- not knowing. Not knowing,
2: yeah. So it's almost best, better for you to have a result that yeah. may not be great than to not know. And I imagine it's because of that extrapolating in your mind that you go to the doom place yeah. automatically.
1: Yeah, and what did you what did you think
2: or feel when they said when they said that to you there's these two small things in there that we're going to
1: My first thought was I've used up all my credit like with my family and partner and friends because my partner and I had had such a hard time so recently before that and just barely made it through I had decided you know I just have to be like a good listener and not let her feel abandoned the way that she did when I was going through this intense thing there's no way that I can go through another intense thing and ask her to like be along for the ride with me. Like, I'm fucked, you like, know? Like, don't,
2: I don't deserve this. It's too much weight on a partner.
1: Yeah, yeah. It just, I mean, it didn't seem possible.
2: I was selfish of me to get bre- breast cancer. Uh,
1: absolutely, yeah, yeah. Totally, and... Um, High
2: five, low self-esteem.
1: Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so, and I was, you know, losing it to the the nurses and the, like, you know, technicians were like, can you call somebody? And I was sort of like... No, like, do you understand? Like, I—I I mean, I had this great support network, but like, I need to pay them back now. You know, like, I'm already that in debt. That makes me so
2: sad. That makes me so sad that you didn't think that you deserved any more love.
1: <laughs> no, I—I I didn't. I mean, you know, like, I called. Like, I called my sister because I felt like I could sort of. I'm feeling like I'm making this like the longest podcast in the world but like don't worry about it she um you know she and i like since my mom died especially had been super super close just i mean i can say like a little enmeshed Mm -hmm. (laughs) but she totally gets the hypochondria thing she has it in varying degrees you know she was like right on it and When I called my partner that day, she actually was great, too. I mean, because I think she was and I was sort of like, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, and my other thought was like, oh, fuck. Now, like, we definitely can't have kids because I, I sort of thought that, you know, they wouldn't let you adopt unless you'd been in remission for years um. Yeah, so at that point, right before I was diagnosed, we'd been thinking about trying to get my partner pregnant. I think she had tried once and not gotten pregnant. And um, so I was like, you know, is this all gonna be on hold? And I remember sitting, she came to pick me up at the doctor's office just cause I was like in no shape to drive. And um, you know, she hugged me and she had tears in her eyes. And, you know, a big part of our relationship struggles after the miscarriage were I was sort of like, there's this tragedy unfolding in my body that nobody else can see. It's like this invisible thing. And it just, and I felt like a liar and I didn't understand why I was so upset and she didn't understand why I was so upset. But like the sort of cultural understanding around cancer, especially breast cancer, is so much clearer that she immediately you know and and because you know there was this solid thing where she's like oh you just had somebody hand you potentially really scary news that's scary for me too and she was really like right there and warm and wonderful and I was sort of like do you still want to try to get pregnant I know you know I know that like we're going to keep the adoption process on hold for a while as it's been but like do you and she was like yeah yeah i told you know whatever happens i still want to get pregnant and so I, I had like that little bit of comfort and the little bit of comfort that they had specifically said it looks like early stage breast cancer so that you know my sort of even though like my brain was totally leaping to like death and doom I could kind of, like, dial it back a little bit and say, like, no, the realistic worst-case scenario is early-stage breast cancer, which is very treatable and has a good recovery Mm -hmm. rate. But, um, yeah, longest weekend of my life. It
2: it, it sounds like, and we'll pick up on that thought, but it sounds like in your brain you have trouble holding two disparate ideas at the same time. Yeah. Like, you can't need a ton of support and have that person s- still enjoy loving you. You know yeah, what I mean, right? Like, like there can't be something negative in your life and something positive because allowing people to love you when you need help is one of the greatest gifts that you can, yeah, you can give them to allow them to let that beautiful part of them. And so let them experience a feeling of meaning and purpose and showing how much they love you. Yeah. But in your mind, it sounds like everything, this makes everything shit. Yeah. This throws <laughs> black paint on everything. So how could there be beautiful colors Yes. Yeah. And I would imagine you discovered there were beautiful colors in this experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, kind of like the... The short version of the story, the the takeaway from my experience going through breast cancer treatment is that doing sort of everything wrong, you know, wrong in quotes after my miscarriage actually like paved the way for me to have a really positive, (laughs) positive in quotes experience with going through breast cancer because I... It was like this rehearsal in a way. I mean, there were there were a lot of things that aren't comparable, but there's also a lot of things that are. Um, and you know, I first of all, when you're diagnosed with breast cancer, they do they give you a binder that's sort of like, so you have breast cancer. Like, you know, here's this, I, and I don't know if this is true across the board, but with the, I was between tre- being treated at Huntington and, and City of Hope. Um, they hand you a binder. It has all kinds of resources. They assign you a social worker who calls and checks in. And she was kind of a ditzy social worker, but, you know, she tried. And, like, there's all kinds of resources and support groups. and um. And I felt, like, so incredibly cared for, partly because I sort of had the luck of good infrastructure and really kind, skilled doctors, and partly because I think I knew more how to find what I needed and advocate for myself and let myself be angry. Like, I think that going through infertility and miscarriage and just trying to have kids for a long time has really put me in touch with my anger which I've you know I've always been quick to cry obviously I've I've always been somewhat emotional but like I was never angry and I think I never felt like I had a right to be angry because I always felt very privileged um and then I just sort of felt like, you know, fuck it, I'm angry. Like, it does... Whether I have a right to be angry or not, like, I'm just angry. And, um, and I think my partner, like, sometimes has felt a bit exhausted by that. Where she's a person who, like, will go to anger before she goes to sadness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've really... I have a blog, and I think people who have read my blog over the past few years know that I'm very much in touch with my anger and, um,
2: so what's the address of the blog? Oh,
1: it's, um, it's bread and bread (laughs) dot com. Um, you know, like bread and circuses or bread and, roses but just i really like carbohydrates i'm not gluten-free
2: the first thing that i asked for as a kid when my mom asked me what i'd like i wanted a cracker sandwich i want two pieces of bread with crackers oh my god yeah so that's i
1: I would love that i like might have that for lunch later today
2: um so yeah it's it sounds like um how could um how could i be having support from these people? and be angry at the same time? How could I be having this privileged life and yeah. be angry at the same time? God, it seems like so much of life is being able to embrace those two disparate things at the same time and saying, this is this is what life is about, is, yeah. is being able to wrap our head around that. And if you think about it, no, that's... That's how the universe is is everything has an equal and opposite reaction, yeah, everything has its opposite for there to be balance so why shouldn't we be people with the light part of ourselves and as Jung said the the shadow part of ourselves yeah, and it's one of the things that my therapist always encourages me is don't deny the shadow part of yourself don't everybody has a shadow part to themselves don't yeah. don't try to pretend that doesn't exist, embrace that. That doesn't mean go out and hurt people, but embrace that you have those thoughts and feelings.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've actually like, at times really enjoyed embracing that. Um, You know, it's weird because I, I mean, you know, I was an English major and like I, it's the complexity of people in the world is always what interests me. And yet when it comes to myself, my thinking has often been really black and white and it's obviously something I still
2: yeah. struggle with. We're probably not going to remember what it was, but there was a thread that, that we had before I said, it sounds like you're, you were having trouble uh, holding yeah. uh, two things at the same time. I think that was the, the, the point that, that I was making, but it, we were talking about uh, the,
1: the, well, uh, maybe just the, the feelings of, um, you know, dessert, Yeah, like, you know, how can I be so privileged, but also so angry and feel so wronged? And I mean, of course, you can be privileged in one way and not in another. It's not it's not like the hardest thing to wrap your mind around, except that it is. (laughs) Um, So I think I really like as I was going through cancer treatment, which was was from um, which was basically you know, from Christmas of 2012 through, um, like, summer of 2013, and I really let myself be angry, I let myself be taken care of. I think you, I think on one of the shows, you were talking about how, like, you kind of, like, how cared for you feel in a hospital like love it when they give you the good drugs and a warm
2: blanket a, a nurse that has empathy uh it's it's the greatest
1: so for all like my complete terror of like any diagnostic medical situation i actually like have the warmest memories of like going in for chemo and even surgery like i had a I had a double mastectomy and with reconstruction and then later because also in this process I I found out that um I have the uh, BRCA2 gene um so as a precautionary measure I I um I had my ovaries out when I did my second reconstructive surgery and most of those experiences I I have pretty positive memories of the first surgery, partly because, you know, when they they do the surgery, they take the tumor out and they also look to see if there's any metastasis to the lymph nodes and there wasn't. So like, luckily, I, you know, I had good news. I also found out the tumor was really huge. I I was, I was a... uh, double d going in so there was like a lot of places for cancer to hide and um <laughs> that like,
2: <laughs> is such an awesome sentence that is such an awesome sentence
1: yeah i was uh i was carrying around uh, you know i uh, this is also what i hate so like when you're pregnant like they're constantly telling you, like, now your baby's the size of a blueberry. And you're like, it's always fruit or a vegetable. And then they do the same thing with tumors. And so I I was like, my tumor was like, it was like 10 centimeters. So that's like, I was like, that's the size of like a summer squash. And I I picked a vegetable that I really hate. Um, But I think I also, I had this deep shame about going through cancer treatment, partly because I felt like, I ended up hearing a lot of stories from people like, you know, I'm I'm in my 30s and I know a lot of people who their primary experience with the medical world is when they had a C-section, you know, Mm -hmm. so and I just wanted to be like, stop fucking comparing your C-section to like me like getting my tits cut off, you know, like I mean, strangely, it was actually, so I have a a doc, I mean, this is obsessive too, but in a useful way, I have a, like a word document where I kept all my medical notes and it's labeled free boob job. Um, that was, that was my gesture to positive thinking because I always sort of <laughs> wanted awesome. like smaller, perkier boobs. Um, and so I, um, yeah, I, I guess my point was that like, I had my actual medical experiences in terms of treatment were really positive. And I have like fond memories of like, I was well cared for and I let myself be well cared for. Um, although I did actually, like since we're talking about anger, I did have what I kind of think of as like my little like bit of like performance, angry performance art, which is that before, if you're a woman of... Childbearing age, anytime you have surgery, anytime they give you general anesthesia, they make you do a pregnancy test. And so the surgery where I was – and, you know, already I've had experiences with infertility. I'm in a relationship with a woman. I could not be less pregnant. And the surgery that was my second reconstructive surgery where I was also having my ovaries removed, I was like, it's just so – so mean to make me do a pregnancy test before just, the surgery where that they have to make sure you'll never get pregnant. Um, that's, that's
2: ridiculous.
1: It, it's it's totally it just like cruel. lawsuit culture. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm going to say no to the pregnancy test. I'll sign whatever I have to sign to say I won't sue you. Yeah. And they sort of like... Like, the, I'm so, like, a people pleaser and not a troublemaker, but I was like, I'm going to make trouble. I'm going to, like, I'll probably have to take the pregnancy test anyway, but I'm going to put up a fuss.
2: Good for you for advocating for yourself. I mean, that sounds like you did grow from the from the previous experience. Because ultimately, isn't that what what... The extrapolation and the racing mind is about is because there's something that we can't let out there's something that we feel that we don't have control over and so often i think it's uh, you know afraid of upsetting people or or whatever and taking power in our lives sometimes the the healthiest way is one that disappoints other people or makes them uncomfortable
1: yeah and i've gotten a lot more comfortable with making other people uncomfortable because and I think that was what that was I was kind of like look I mean it's the hard thing about all of this is there's no like person I can blame even though I periodically try to um but I I still felt like look I know you're taking my ovaries for my own good but you're taking them and I don't have to like you know, just underscore how not pregnant I am by taking your stupid test. Um and finally they when they sent my um gynecological surgeon in, she was like, you know I they sent a couple of people in to try to talk me into taking a pregnancy test and um she was like, you know, I, I, our America's very um, you know, lawsuit happy that's that's why we have all these laws there's so much paperwork you know it's not like this anywhere else she's like the country that i'm that i used to practice in um women have to you know can only have like surgery with their husband's permission um and whatever the doctor decides to do is it's just the doctor knows mm. best she's from <laughs>
2: canada <laughs>
1: <laughs> right yeah <laughs> she is from um she, i think she's like ethnically armenian but she's from iraq and mm-hmm. she used to practice in baghdad and i you know i had my moment of empathy and of it could be worse and i was like okay i could be i could mm-hmm. i could be an iraqi woman waiting for my husband's permission um to have some kind of surgery that i don't want so um
2: Although that sounds a little manipulative on oh, her, totally, her part. Totally. Yeah.
1: But successfully so. Yeah. You know, I'm She's like. She's good. Yeah. She is really good. She could good. turn pro. Yeah. Yeah. Because she wasn't like, mm-hmm. she didn't like package it in a really guilt trippy way. So I was yeah. like, all right. I, I'll take like of all the people who tried to talk me into it, you win. So congratulations. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but I think that, you know, what's important is that you spoke your mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It felt good. Like I, I, I was. Think,
2: just, yeah. I think it's sometimes if we speak our mind and then we compromise. I think that's still okay because yeah. at least we spoke our mind. We let some of the steam out, and 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 I think that's one of the ways maybe that we we build self esteem is when we begin to say like I have a, a, a an issue with a guy that I play hockey with who. um is violent. He's dangerous. There's a switch that flips in him and he's been tossed out of games tons of times and he's a big strong guy. He likes me and he's taken the back. He's put his hand on the back of my head and bounced my head off the glass. Um so you can imagine some of the things that he does to other people. The people he and, doesn't like. And I it was hard for me to do it um but i wrote a letter to the head of the league and said i just want this on paper that this guy is fucking dangerous and i want him out of the league yeah. and i have to play him in another league and he may find out that i did that and i am dreading running into him yeah i don't and, blame you and maybe in the ha- and i was actually practicing in my car on the way over here the eye contact because i will want to avert my eyes when I talk to him, but why should I feel that shame? Right. And so I was like trying to imagine what it would be like to be somebody who really has self esteem and is, I do have self esteem, but somebody who is comfortable advocating for their, yeah. for their needs. And, and I was trying to imagine what that would be like, picturing it in my mind. Cause it's hard. If, yeah. if we're, if we're not people that, that do that naturally, it's, it's scary, but that's so great that you, that you, that you did that, and you.
1: It's it's interesting that you mention, um, you know, sort of visualizing. Like, what would a what would a really like confident person do in this yeah. situation? Because the the one thing that, well, not the one thing, one of many things, but an, an important thing that helped me get through dealing with breast cancer was, um, so, right, like I've always written. Fiction and I, my, I've always thought, oh, I, I like reading memoirs, but like, you know, my story about myself is like, I'm this privileged person with a, a thankfully pretty boring life, and I would never write a memoir. And then I had like, you know, three and a half years of just shit, shitty thing after shitty thing, and I was like, the day I was diagnosed, I'm like, I'm fucking writing a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> and so, And, you know, I don't know for sure that I am, but I I think what it really enabled me to do was I had kept a journal like off and on previously, but it it was always the place where I didn't sort of try to write well. And I thought, oh, because that's liberating, because that's just letting me get in touch with my emotions. But I think actually what it sometimes enabled was a a place for me to just perform my obsessive thinking over and over so
2: and see what's going on inside you because our thoughts yeah. i think sometimes are so fast they're almost like traffic that we can't see but when we journal i think it's it's like we take the helicopter view of what's going on with us and we get to see the larger picture um that's that's how i feel when i when i journal it it gives form to the fleetingness and the rapidness of, yeah. of the the Agitation.
1: Well, I think I discovered that by changing the way in which I was journaling, because rather than just, you know, slowing down the cycling thoughts and putting them on paper, I pretended there was an audience that I was trying to describe those things to. And I wrote in the past tense, even when, even beyond just, oh, yesterday I, you know, went mm-hmm. to chemo. I wrote it as if I was, it was in more in the distant past. And I tried to write pretty descriptions and things that I normally would never put in a journal. And in doing that, I think I was able to visualize what, first, just in terms of my therapist often tells me that, you know, a sign of depression is a foreshortening of the future. And that had, that is, You know, sometimes doubly so when you're dealing with something that might foreshorten your future. (laughs) (laughs) So partly just by imagining myself kind of looking back at this experience, it helped me sort of stretch out that time period and and sort of imagine myself like, oh, maybe there will be a time when I have hair again, you know, and um, it enabled me to have like the helicopter view and also just a little be a little bit more have more of a sense of humor and a sense of perspective because if i was just writing my obsessive thoughts it would be like i'm going to die everyone i love is going to leave me i'm never going to have babies like those three thoughts over and over and over again whereas like if i'm writing for this like hypothetical audience i have to describe it if i describe it as you know, at that time, I really thought I was going to die or my partner and I were in the car having a conversation, you know, and I was really worried that she would be so overwhelmed, she would eventually reject me. Like it just sort of, you know, I become a character rather than like a seer of truth. Hmm. And that was hugely, weirdly helpful.
2: Yeah, I think that's why art creating art sometimes can be so so incredibly therapeutic. Yeah. It's, um what did you think or feel when you looked at your body post surgery?
1: Yeah, I mean I I had like that's a big I mean the,
2: Has I, there been an arc to that there
1: those... ha- there has a bit. Um, I mean, the strange thing is, like I I said, I wasn't, you know, for me, my, my femininity and my sexuality were not like anchored in my boobs. Like I sort of had this grudging relationship with them, which had been like. All right. As long as you guys stay healthy, I'll try to love you, even though that you're, you know.
2: I can't imagine on a bad day what double D's have got to be like to lug around. <laughs> yeah, seriously.
1: Yeah, not you know, bra shopping not fun. I was always in like
2: the and you like to run. <laughs> I mean, that's not a run friendly. No, it was
1: there. I it was a double sports bra life I was living. Yeah. So, I was like, um, you know that that part like didn't seem traumatic to me although I think just on the kind of like most fundamental level like before the surgery I kept sort of my brain kept kind of going through like the steps of how they actually do it because I think I was just trying to wrap my mind around like that thing's not going to be there and that's so strange you know like it's it's kind of like an amputation in that way. Um,
2: Plus, how can you how can you perfectly obsess about it if you don't know all the details of how it can go wrong?
1: R- right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I
2: trust is a, is an issue that comes comes through over and over and over yeah. and over again with with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it
2: does with all of us. Right. But, but like, know. yeah,
1: trust as it relates to you know releasing control. Um, it's absolutely ter- it's terrifying and I'm not in some ways I had a lot of trust like I wasn't one of those people who like you know obsessively researched my doctors I was sort of like hey everyone knows City of Hope is good instinctually I I felt good about the people I was meeting with you know
2: so there are things that you can go okay yeah hands off surrendering yeah okay Um,
1: but I, I think that you're right in that like just the way that my brain kind of cycled through the steps was a sense of trying to get some kind of like psychological control mm-hmm. over the situation. And and also, you know, just how intensively I kind of documented everything. That's also like me trying to to have control and I always do sort of wonder like it's so hard to navigate the medical system even when you're a fairly well educated person with a lot it's, of resources it's awful like I think people who you know English isn't their first language or you know whatever I the just, lawyers
2: also make it so fucking difficult like yeah. you were like you were talking about um anything else um before we get to the 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 present phase of your life and the sure. work that you're doing um, anything uh, uh about how you felt about your your body so you're pretty yeah. okay with uh post surgery how you looked and I
1: mean the weird the weirdest thing was not having nipples honestly mm. and it's still like you know you sort of you you come out of there with barbie boobs like i some some um doctors will do like nipple preservation but my surgeon's very cautious and is like no if there's one extra like breast cell hanging around Mm -hmm. um and i'm glad for that but so that part was weird that part was the thing that i've sort of just felt like okay and they they can do nipple reconstruction and my plastic surgeon has sort of gone back and forth about whether he's willing to do because i had radiation on the right side which is where the cancer was basically any surgery you do on radiated tissue is a little bit riskier in terms of how it's going to heal because you're i mean it's you know it's so interesting how the body is so much like the the mind in that you know like the more you tax it the tireder it gets (laughs) so when your body's been through radiation it's like look don't like sew a pretend nipple on me now
2: (laughs) Where would you get tissue from to create a nipple?
1: Um, it varies a bit, but um, the probably the inner thigh. That's like what, and they so they sort of like it. It they you know cut a little circle, and basically it's it's kind of like it's sort of origami like in terms of how they they get the like middle raised part.
2: Um, but I'm like the color. Um, well,
1: that they tattoo on. They oh, can do okay. 3D tattooing, which actually is pretty amazing. I mean, like, you know, this. so that's the one surgery I haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. But probably I'm thinking about doing it later this summer. And um, just the fact that, like, there's a surgery that's now on my, like, ah I should do that when I get around to it list is like. It's nice to know it's there should you want it. It's evidence of like how much my life has changed because something that, you know, would have been like this huge life event is now like, you know, for better and worse, like, Mm -hmm. I guess I'll probably do that. You know,
2: when you go to if you do go to a gym or someplace where you have to be in the in the women's locker room, uh, you know, where people other than your partner sees you, um, is there anxiety?
1: Um yeah there is some um, um you know I mean in terms of like talking about my body I feel pretty comfortable I've written a lot about it and I even did like a uh I have a photographer and a painter friend who like took some photos of me like nude photos when I was going through treatment um And I felt fine about that because with all of those cases, I feel like, you know, this is my story and I'm telling it either visually or in words. But I think that when you're just in a locker room, you don't have that opportunity. That control is taken away from you. exactly. It's like,
2: I would rather share intimate details of my life. I don't have a problem necessarily sharing them on the podcast or sharing them with somebody. But if somebody were to bring that up out of my control, it would be very scary to me.
1: exactly. And so, you know, I... uh, Like, there was a... My partner and I went to a Korean spa. My my boss loves going to Korean spas, and she always calls them the naked lady spa. Like, she's like, ah, I've had such a long day. I really need to go to the naked lady spa. Um, And so at one point, my partner and I went and like I was like I'm gonna wear a swimsuit you know I'm not just gonna like like I you know I'll just sort of change quickly in locker rooms and stuff like that I'm not like totally the shame-based seventh grader I once was about it but um but I was like I'm not I'm not comfortable just like wandering around being like look at my weird boobs um so I was wearing a swimsuit and then you know the the like spa wardens, whatever they are, was like, you know, you can't wear that swimsuit. And like, I remember at that moment feeling very like, uh, you know, sort of like a little bit trapped and just sort of like self-pitying.
2: Almost like gym class where they make you shower. Yeah. Oh, God, that used to terrify me. me too. Yeah.
1: Only they didn't make us shower, which was weird. Like we were just stinky, even though there were showers. It was strange at my middle school, but I dodged that one. But yeah, so there's there's some of that that's still there.
2: So what did you feel then when you had to take your swimsuit off?
1: Well, I th- what did I end up doing? I think I like. I mean, I would love to like have the story be like, and then I just proudly walked around and naked. I was empowered, and, and I everybody was so said, empowered.
2: Oh, "Come, give me a high five, sister."
1: <laughs> I mean, the this particular spa that we went to like late at night it wasn't one of the like higher end ones and like you know it was it was us like some like middle aged and older Korean women and like three prostitutes who I think like just spend the night there because you can stay all night for 15 bucks so it was like an interesting crowd again like you know I I I think
2: you got a sitcom
1: I know right oh my god (laughs) That would be a, I would watch that show. I would I would play the the lady with the weird boobs uh-huh. on that show. Um but I think I think what I did was just like go and and like wrap myself in a towel and yeah. wander around in a towel. I I,
2: I wanted to mo- you know more than what actually happened. I wanted to know the feelings yeah. that, that that came, yeah. came up in And me. it
1: was it was like a certain amount of, of shame and, and just feeling sorry for myself, like look, I was wearing a swimsuit because I was already feeling kind of uneasy, and now you're making me feel like I broke this. Like, first I broke the rule of not having the right kind of body, and now I'm breaking the rule of not having the right kind of non-clothing. Wow. So, yeah, I think that's how I felt.
2: Let's go to the most recent chapter of of your life, which is the work you're doing with uh, Homeboy Industries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When we were talking about how difficult trust can be for you and wanting to control things, um, something that I've always believed in, at least since I've gotten sober, is the importance between the importance of having meaning and purpose in your life and that building trust in the universe um, or wherever it is that I'm I'm headed, yeah. my place in the universe. Is that an experience that that you have had work having a a job where I would imagine there is meaning and purpose in, mm-hmm. in doing something like that? Can you talk about the feelings that you get what it does for your soul any snapshots from working other than the one with these two guys that were yeah hugging it out
1: yeah I mean that's a good question because I think over the past few years i've like I've always been um i guess like, I've I've always had some kind of sense. I've I more or less believed in God, you know, like, definitely, like, with a sort of agnostic asterisk. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's God. I'm not sure how God works. And I, I've spent a lot of time sort of being like, okay, you know, it's really important. I mean, huge. I've had so many conversations with my therapist about, like, you know, the, the sort of meritocracy idea. And, like, I I hate it. I've had major falling outs with friends uh, when they've said, like, well, everything happens for a reason, and I just want to throttle people because I...
2: What does that mean, then, I'm, about the person that gets breast cancer and has their nipples taken off? Well,
1: and what does it mean about the person who's, like, born in a war-torn country and, like, doesn't even have the chance to get to the age where you'd get breast cancer, you know, like it's in a personal sense and a global sense. It's like, fuck you. You know, like I, I just, I I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. And then there's that tiny voice that worries that it might be true, that there might be some sort of punitive God out there. You know, like I, my, I don't know if it's like my soul doesn't think that, but my brain does or vice versa. But, you know, so the idea of sort of like causality is something I've wrestled with a lot. Um, And so I think that there was, yeah, I mean, you know, to get through the experiences that i guess I've gotten through um, somewhat intact or like I, ha- you know, you have to surrender like you ha- in the best and worst moments, you're sort of like, you know, I this em- is me in the I- world.
2: I got to embrace what is. Yeah. I can't change this. Um, when I'm in those moments, I try to say, is there any type of beauty or lesson yeah. or a deepening of connections with other people um and almost always i find some comfort from from that and that to me i can wrap my head around a lot easier than everything happens for a reason because yeah. i believe in god but i also believe we have free will and right. i don't know how much of it is the universe's scientific way of expanding that how how much that pre-programs what we're going to do yeah um And how much of it is me deciding what to do on a day and you deciding what to do on a day. But the one thing I know for absolute certain is that there, even in the worst situations, there there can be beauty if we can surrender, if we can try to find how love can be given. Or received. I mean, you know, you think of Viktor Frankl and his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he describes some of these beautiful, tender moments between people in the concentration camps, singing songs, you know, a starving person giving his crust of bread to somebody that he thinks needs it more. I mean, it doesn't get any more beautiful than, than that. So it doesn't have to be all that thing splattered with black paint. There can be that, that red rose in the middle of a, of a black canvas.
1: And I think where I land is that for me that's where and what God is not not the the kind of powerful entity that causes bad things to happen so that you can learn lessons but the I think what I how I kind of wrap my head around it is like the bad things happen because there's randomness because there are like large sociological forces cuz there's germs whatever and then you know god or love comes in in like the singing you know
2: because it's in i believe that there's love in everything if we look hard enough you know i think of the uh the parents whose kids were killed by a drunk driver and they decide to embrace what happened instead of sweeping it under the carpet and find meaning and purpose in it and they begin to advocate for stricter laws or and then they find this tremendous sense of purpose and they're able to comfort other parents and um and they say that while they miss their child they feel like this is where they're meant to be and that to me is that's my god yeah is that that little flower that's growing in yeah and the yeah and all the darkness and that
1: that you can do that without saying well I just God, this... God killed my child so that I could plant this flower. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And um, trauma had been, and I was actually like diagnosed with PTSD at at one point. I looked up the code on my invoice from my therapist, um, and you know that's really. I mean, probably most of the trainees who come through Homeboy have some kind of post-traumatic stress and you know they describe the work that they do as being trauma-centered and I think like you know like it or not I think trauma really informs my experience of the world now. Um, I used to sort of think oh it's this trauma is the thing that Dr. Drew immediately diagnoses every love line caller with and, you know, felt a little bit like, oh, that's such a simplistic way. But I don't know, it's it's there. And it's, you know, ta- you can be traumatized by a lot of different things. You can
2: be traumatized, but I think by an indifferent parent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you can be re-traumatized. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the trauma that I had after the miscarriage is, you know, I was sort of primed for it because of like, some fairly minor, but real for me kind of, you know, traumas related to like feeling like my sister got more love and attention from my parents mm. than I did. So, um,
2: and it's not a contest. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. You can, you know, you can go through a war or you can go through an internal war. Um, and on one hand, like I'm the grant writer, so I'm not doing this sort of like, gritty super intense work of you know holding people as they transform their lives but i i do feel really honored to get to witness it and um and i love that for almost everybody there like there's just this understood idea of like we've all got our shit you know And we're going to love each other through like uh, Father Greg Boyle, who's the founder of Homeboy, um, said recently, um, how did he phrase it? You know, there's no way out of pain except through it. But here you can go through it and be loved. And I just feel like, you know, if there's sort of one Thing that seems super true to me it's that so the idea of like pain and love in the same place the sort of breaking down of some of the us and them that I had you know well this is another tangent but I uh listened to the episode with Teresa Strasser mm-hmm. when she talked about some of the postpartum stuff she went through and I'm I'm very hesitant to listen to anyone talk about like their struggles, like being a new parent or
2: um you're afraid it's gonna be triggering or sad?
1: Triggering for you. sad and like angering because it seems like such a privilege. Um and I do have friends who I think like, okay, it's a struggle, but like I feel like they haven't had a lot of empathy. And other friends who've had incredible empathy. but mm. so I sort of like, you know, <laughs> started listening with like my finger on the pause button more or less. but like it was such an amazing episode. and she was so honest, and like her struggles did seem very, very real. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm a little sleep deprived, you know, that I kind of had this this realization that, like, first of all, I think some of what I've gone through like emotionally and some of the ways I've processed what it means to be a parent or not be a parent would have happened if those babies had lived. And, um, and I think there's also the weird thought of if those babies had lived, I would have had estrogen feeding my cancer for longer and probably would have been diagnosed at a much later stage and, that's another thing where I'm like, well, good thing. I don't get to make that decision. Good thing. Like I don't, didn't get to be the person who is like, choose between your life and your baby's lives. You know, um, in listening to her episode, I, I had that strong feeling of, of empathy for somebody whose experience seemed on the surface to be. So the one that I would have preferred to have, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, I don't totally know where I was going with that, but, um,
2: talking about uh, faith and trust in the universe and letting go and pain and love existing in the same place.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that, you know, that is something that is very like close to the surface at homeboy and, um, and I feel really like understood there, Mm. you know, and I like that.
2: I just had the image that, yeah, you know, the the world can be kind of chaotic and unpredictable and dangerous. But I think if we try hard, we can all find our own fort yeah. to kind of go and get yeah. support and get sometimes protection um, yeah. from
1: it. And I think I know what made me think of the Teresa Strasser episode was because I've because I think working at Homeboy, it's a place that tries to break down those us and them barriers. I I think in listening to that episode was like, oh, them isn't this, the people with babies and the people without babies. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, just people going through things. And that's something that I could, I would have said right from the start in theory, but to actually kind of experience that on a gut level is, is a hard place to get to. It's a
2: big difference between knowing something intellectually and feeling it emotionally. Yeah. We had a guest on the show, um, Michael h and he is he has his master's in uh in marriage and family therapy, and he has a mom who's codependent and he knows intellectually that he needs to create space between him and her and set boundaries and emotionally he can't because yeah. he's her savior yeah, and what a great example of the difference between the intellectual and the and the emotional oh yeah, Cheryl, thank you so much for um opening up your your soul and your heart and uh letting us get to get to know you and um i'm i'm so glad you survived you know i know i don't know you (laughs) that well you know uh,
1: knock on wood i'm always knocking on wood but yeah i mean i'm doing really well health-wise and you know in my head most of the time
2: (laughs) okay thank you so much thank you many many thanks to uh to cheryl um Oh, she's so vulnerable. I just love when I get a guest that that just opens opens their heart up and um just love it. Love it. Uh she's doing okay. Her health has uh, been good lately. She had a, a um got really close to adopting uh, a kid and then it fell through at the last minute. Um but other than that she's she's doing well and uh no uh recurrence of the uh, of the cancer. So, yay. Before we get to the surveys, I want to first of all I want to welcome you to probably the longest episode in the history of the show because I got a pretty big stack of surveys. But you know what's awesome about podcast is you can pause it and uh, take a little time out and go fuck yourself, which is always sweet. Um, what did I want to mention? I've already told you about Podfest. Um, yeah, I want to. I want to. Um, the the website for the show is mentalpod.com and uh there's a couple of different ways to support uh the show if you feel so inclined you can make uh either a single donation uh, with PayPal or a recurring monthly donation um, and it's super easy to set up you can do it for as little as 5 bucks a month and it uh, it means a lot to me and it helps keep the show running and um You can also support the show by, uh, if you're going to buy something from Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage, and then Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. And uh, that definitely helps. And you can support us non-financially by going uh, to iTunes, writing something nice, and giving us good rating. Um, Haven't had many people doing that lately. I don't know if uh, that's because all the listeners have already done it, but um, uh, that helps. And spreading the word through social media helps greatly. That helps... um, bring bring new listeners. Because people do get fed up with my bullshit and move on from the podcast. And we have to replace them, much like um soldiers in the first world war. Just <laughs> getting machine gun at the front line. I'm listen I am so loving Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. He's doing a multi part one on um it's called Blueprint for Armageddon and it's all about World War One and uh I love that guy. Love his podcast. Uh, This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. And I just wanted to read two parts from this. It's uh, from a woman who calls herself Khaleesi. Uh, I assume she's a a fan of uh, Game of Thrones. And um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to and why. She writes, I would like to express how unhappy I am in my relationship with my boyfriend. Uh, sexually, he doesn't seem to ever want sex, and I do, and it's getting old. I'm thinking about having sex with a friend. And what, if anything, do you wish for? She writes, for my boyfriend to get his husband's shit together uh, so I can not want to cheat on him and so I can share more with him. And I just wanted to say that it can be crazy-making to wait for somebody else to change. It is. It is its own sickness, and it is every bit as toxic as that other person being shut down, or abusive, or addicted. And those two are huge red flags that I think both of you um, could would benefit from uh, getting uh, going to talk to a, a professional um, because it can be very easy in a relationship to just focus on what the other person isn't doing. Um, you know, but the fact that you're you're staying in this relationship where you're getting crumbs says something, you know, about your self-esteem and and how low you're setting the bar for what you expect in a relationship. And there's uh, there's generally you know an underlying uh, codependency or something underneath that. Um, anyway. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Motor Mom, and she writes, I have five kids, ranging in age from five to 13. I also work, and many days I come home with my kids. You can, imagine what, um, uh, you can imagine what my house sounds like, five feisty kids and one tired mom. I usually don't have the energy to give each kid the time they deserve, but the other day my husband took three of them out in the evening. I stayed home with the oldest and the youngest. At some point, I needed to go to the neighbors to get something, and I gave my five-year-old the option of coming with me. She was so excited. She took my hand, and we started skipping and singing Skip to My Lou. We didn't go far. I was out of breath pretty quickly. But those short minutes when I was able to be fully present and enjoy my daughter's company while she basked in my full attention brought a joy to my heart that I don't often experience. Love. Love. Happy moments were the, were the parents and the kids... Just relish in the moment, man. That is... I don't think there's anything more important in parenting. You know, guidance and all that other stuff is certainly absolutely necessary. But these are the ones that I think really deeply affect kids' souls and really feed them. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey. And this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Max. And he is straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He writes... Fundamentalist Protestant missionary childhood, loving family, batshit, insane religious culture. Um, He. uh, Has he ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, When I was a young child, three to five, my brother and I. I played doctor with a female cousin around our age and a girl who our mom babysat. It was all consensual and exploratory, so I don't believe it was abusive. That didn't keep me from feeling deep shame uh, about it well into my teenage years. I now realize that my cousin was almost definitely being abused by someone because of the nature of the play she constantly initiated. Uh, When I was four, I was fondled by an older girl, uh, maybe nine to 12, while visiting her house. She pulled up the long t-shirt she was wearing, revealing that she was not wearing underwear, and had me put my finger in her and kiss her vagina. I remember being very excited by this and then deeply ashamed when someone walked in the room we were in, and the older girl pretended that I was trying to look up her shirt. I never considered that instant Incident to be abused, but as I write it out, it seems totally fucked up, and it sheds light on the sexual shame I've been working past uh, for the last decade or decade or so. It's it's such an important moments like that just highlight how we can bury things, and yet when we start talking about it, or and especially when we write about it, we suddenly get more clarity on that. Um, He's been physically abused, uh, not sure about being uh, emotionally abused. He writes, in eighth grade I was physically attacked and humiliated at school by Hispanic boys with gang affiliations mainly for being an awkward white boy. Wow, almost turned this whole thing in without mention, mentioning the ritualized child abuse I experienced in the form of spanking. I don't know how familiar you, you are with Dr. Dobson and focus on the family, but well before he was making headlines as a world-class homophobe, Dr. James Dobson was systematically destroying the self-worth of an entire generation of Christian children through his advocacy of a strict disciplinary and spanking regimen. I could go in this in depth, but maybe that's a different survey. Any positive experiences with your abusers? No. Uh, Darkest thoughts? I have no shame for my thoughts. Darkest secrets? I have used civilians as human shields. Um, He was uh, in the military. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Two women engaging in sex with each other and me uh, while acting as my willing submissives. Um... I'm not sure. It says... Oh, how does that sharing that make you feel? Turned on. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry. Why? Because war. What, if anything, do you wish for? Community. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, yes. My five-year plan is building a commune with some of my best friends slash army buddies. How do you feel after writing these things down? Anxious. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Uh, it helps to remember that you're not the same you you once were. Thank you so much for that, Max. Um, this is uh, a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself PB, and uh, she writes. Uh, this has a hint of awfulsome. Um, out walking on a warm summer night in the dark, listening to. Uh, yeah, I would say this is a this is mildly uh, awfulsome, but uh, it made me chuckle. Uh, out walking on a warm summer night in the dark, listening to Ravel's Bolero on my iPhone. For those of you unfamiliar, this is a classical work that builds slowly instrument upon instrument, becomes increasing, increasingly tense, loud, and exciting. Just as I'm literally getting the chills from this great music, a call comes in on my iPhone to interrupt the piece. It's a recorded message from my doctor's office reminding me to get my colorectal exam. Oh, fuck do I love moments like that. I just love it. I love it. Like a hug from the universe. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Broke Dick Mounting. Uh, he is straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, um, never been sexually abused um been physically abused and emotionally abused he writes my parents would spank me and my siblings with a long plastic shoehorn the amount of strikes depended on the quote offense but it uh but usually it only came out if they were going to spank us to the point uh we couldn't sit I don't think a parent should ever hit a child, but this is clearly beyond the light butt smack some parents consider spanking. I have also been slapped in the face for talking back or other lesser crimes. But the worst was getting choked by my mom when I mouthed off once at the dinner table when struggling with homework that she was helping me with. I remember even as a child of 13 thinking, how could you possibly choke someone you claim to love? Both my parents came from strict households, but my mother's was extremely strict. I don't feel this excuses any of her abuse, but it explains her thinking that this was appropriate and lesser than the violence her dad inflicted on her. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I do love my parents, but I feel I cannot be open with them about much of who I really am. They either criticize anything that is outside their small worldview, worry about it, or hide from it. I can't even count count the number of times that either of them have responded immediately with a negative comment or worry uh, on even trivial choices that I've made. Example, if I were to say I was interested in skiing or went skiing with a friend, the first thing out of my dad's mouth would be how I could break a leg or how Sonny Bono died from skiing. It's left me feeling that the world is only a dangerous place and why bother trying anything because I could get hurt? So why share anything with them when they will just point out the flaws? And sexuality, and by the way, my mom does that constantly. And it's one of the things that would just make me shut down. It's like, I, yeah, it's so fucking annoying. Um, and sexuality is their worst hang-up. Sex is so shameful in their minds that even as an adult, I cannot act like I have a sex life or sex history around them. I've caught my father hurriedly switching channels when even the mildest sexual situation was on a sitcom. I am 30 and my mother will not let me sleep in the same bed as a long-term girlfriend if we visit. It's not like I want to chat about sex with my parents, but the way they acted about sex has left me feeling severely damaged. Darkest thoughts. That I will lose what little control I have over my depression and kill myself that I am hideous and no attractive woman in her right mind would ever want to be with me. Sex is a disgusting act and I'm a terrible person for the few small slash average kinks and fantasies I do have. Darkest Secrets Uh, I was torn between this survey and the body shame one, but I feel like because my parents made sex so shameful uh, feeling and secretive it belongs in here, I have so much shame about my penis and sex and masturbation. I was a virgin until I was 22. I missed some clues or was too scared to take advantage of the few chances I got in high school, but I masturbated like a fiend. Uh, Not so unique, I know. Um, By the way, when you're masturbating like a fiend, one hand is working your junk and the other one is twirling your mustache. Uh, I started cybersexing with high school girls even after I graduated. I had a cyber, long-term relationship with a girl who lived in Canada, partially because I was scared to do the real thing. We broke up after she met me, which has led to shame after breakups and a feeling that I've done something wrong, no matter the reason for the breakup. Anyhow, I would masturbate for literally hours straight. I also tried doing kugel exercises because I heard that dudes were supposed to last a long time during sex, Well, after one session, I felt a sharp pain in my balls." I somehow triggered acute non-bacterial prostatitis. When I came, look it up. You know that if you know the term already, you know this hell, and I feel sorry for you. Um, basically, uh, since then, over a decade ago, it hurts to ejaculate. My epididym- epididymis is swollen on both sides. The tip of my penis hurts, and it's hard to maintain an erection unless it is, is super gentle sex. Um, Unless it is super gentle, sex usually hurts, which has not helped any relationship I've been in. It's destroyed my confidence in asking girls out. I've had a few girlfriends, but it gets tiring explaining what the problem is if I go for a casual hookup. So sex has become super emotionally draining and makes my depression spiral down even more. Because I was bad with girls in high school, I wanted to know what a blowjob felt like, so I tricked my cat into licking my penis by putting flavored cat medicine on it. I've never shared this with an actual human in real life and feel like I could never share that with a partner, even if we were together for decades. Um, By the way, many, many people have, have done that, so... And uh, he writes, I have tortured animals before as a small child and teenager, not to serial killer levels, but some of it out of morbid curiosity. I could actually feel the power I had over taking an animal's life, and it made me feel empowered. I fantasized about crushing my pet My pet cat's skull with my foot just to feel that crunch. I loved her dearly and wept like a baby when she finally died. It was just a strange fascination with what it would sound and feel like. I've kicked pets before uh, out of built-up frustration, and I think my current kitty might have a slight limp from that. Uh, When I was a teen, I plotted with friends to shoot up our high school. This was about two years before Columbine. Obviously, we never got past the planning stages, but it was not inconceivable that we could have tipped past that point. Thank you for being so honest about that stuff, and quite a few t- people as well have shared um, about uh, harming animals when they were kids and and teenagers, and some even in their in their twenties. Uh, even though they're horrified that they're doing it, it's, there was a there was a compulsion in there, like an anger that they that they felt like was going to swallow them up if they didn't let it let it out. Um, and so, I encourage you to to get help for that and to forgive yourself for it because you're not you're not still doing it um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you fucking underage girls legal teens or college girls i think it's because i'm also trying to compensate for missing out in high school and college my porn searches usually involve the word teen i've ended up on some terrible sites because of that but under 16 feels wrong to me and i back out that does not mean i haven't seen something i wish i hadn't um bondage and fucking a girl who is tied up Orgies in three ways. My one ex overshared her exploits to me once. And again, I linked it to things I haven't had. So I am and was obsessed over group sex. I've masturbated to pictures of exes and girls uh, that won't date me on Facebook. Um, My one friend... Uh, posted on an alt porn site. She told me about it and basically offered to fuck me on her last thing in my city, but I was too scared to do it. I never saved the pics and she got them taken down and sometimes I search for hours trying to find them online. Not healthy behaviors. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would love to scream at my parents for shaming my sexuality. I was spanked for cutting out pictures of girls in bras when I was like eight. All I knew is it made my penis feel funny but nice. Now I just associate sex with shame. What, if anything, and I want to recommend the book uh, Healing the Shame that Binds by John Bradshaw. What, if anything, do you wish for? A dick that works normally. No pain during sex or when ejaculating. A girlfriend who is patient and kind who will help me work through this stuff. A therapist who can help guide me and not make me feel judged. Have you shared these things with others? I have never shared most of this, especially the bestiality when, when I was a teen. I don't know that I could ever share that with a person in real life. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel a little better, like I know what to focus on more with trying to get help. I feel a little kinder towards myself. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Please give me hope that my chronic pain can get better. If you have chronic prostatitis, it sucks, but try to find help. I went to five or so doctors before giving up, and I'm already, I'm ready to try and to get help again. Don't give up. Don't jerk off or do Kegels to the point you break your dick. L O L. Ladies, if you can have a good sex life with someone with, cro- with a chronic problem sexually, please be extra patient and kind and caring. Please share when you are happy with the sex and help us to get you there through other means. Please don't shame your children if they show their sexuality at an early age. Don't spank or slap your kids. Violence like that is incomprehensible to a small child. Thank you so much for that uh, broke dick mounting it turns out that was his legal name Uh, this is a happy moment that um, she she was going to send this to me as an email but she wanted to uh, surprise me through writing this as a happy moment she writes a couple and she calls herself uh, triple L a couple nights ago I was listening to the podcast and Paul happened to read one of my surveys and respond to it afterwards I felt such a strong sense of relief and almost joy that I was completely taken aback I wrote, this, I wrote this in a journal afterwards. His remarks were validating. For the first time in probably months, I feel some peace, lifted, stronger, a stronger sense of self. Someone knows. Someone listened. Someone heard me and was moved and knew what the hell I was talking about. Having, having someone acknowledge my life and my pain, be sympathetic, say it out loud, makes me feel more like a living person and less like an apparition. I feel gratitude for this, and I think it's been a long time since I've felt anything like that. If therapy is anything like this, then perhaps there is legitimate hope for me after all. I feel like a person, not just a bag of dysfunction. I feel like a person." End quote. Um, And then she continues, "...Twice when I was younger, I've seen therapists that I refused to talk to only a couple of times each and got nothing out of it. I don't talk to family and friends either." I've never been able to convince myself that talking to someone can help me. In fact, I've always thought it would make things worse. In five minutes flat, you've made clear the lie depression has been telling me for years. I know I have a long way to go, but I've experienced as a reality the effect of talking and being heard, and I can no longer tell myself it won't make me feel any better. It has convinced me that seeking professional help is not only the right thing to do, but also, and most importantly, something that can truly help me if I give it a chance. Perhaps I needed that level of communication to realize how vital the human connection is for me. Thank you so much for that. That that really, really touched me. And um, I, was so, I was so related when you said it, it made me feel less like an apparition. I remember sharing something in a support group one time. Um, something I was, you know, ashamed of and, you know, or something I was feeling pained about. and, And this person really saw me and heard me and said something nice to me. And I felt seen. And it was like, it was the first time in my life, I think, that I really, truly felt seen where I was like, nobody, this person doesn't have any reason to lie to me but still to this day i struggle with that like when somebody knows my last name it it kind of amazes me i feel i feel like that invisible so often like it it's it's just weird i almost get like a jolt of electricity when somebody knows my last name it's fucking weird it's weird um This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by Elizabeth. And she is uh, asexual in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, Uh, never been sexually, physically, or emotionally abused. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about killing myself in a way that is showier than I would do it, um, or hurts my dad and sister worse than just my death would. Uh, Darkest secrets. Uh, When I was 10 years old, I was babysitting my 7-year-old sister and my less-than-1-year-old half-sister. My mother had left shortly after giving birth to my half-sister, and my father's job job had him working odd hours at low pay and couldn't afford a sitter, so babysitting was something that I had to do. Uh, I guess I had a lapse of judgment or I was distracted doing something else, but that night I sat my baby sister on the table. She was young enough uh, that she couldn't support her body weight for long. Eventually, she fell and hit her head on the floor. I remember not wanting to call an ambulance because it cost money and my dad was only a few minutes away, so I called him. He came home right away, took the three of us to the hospital. I thought I had killed my sister since she had her eyes closed and had not moved since she had fallen. My dad wouldn't even look at me. Long story short, she ended up making it, but suffered permanent brain damage. She has trouble controlling her bladder and has poor motor control and also has some learning difficulties. All of these things I have learned secondhand by eavesdropping on my sister's conversations with my mother because after the incident, she took my half-sister to live with her and cut off all contact with me, but keeps in contact with my sister. Um, I just want to give you a hug because you were so abandoned, so abandoned when you needed love the absolute most, and you were a fucking child. You were 10 years old. You were 10 years old. You know, if, I'm not saying your dad should feel shame, but if your dad is going to pour shame out and your mom is going to pour shame out, how about they look at the fact that they split while he had a job that took him away so that there was nobody who was really old enough to babysit. A 10-year-old should not be babysitting like that, in in, in my opinion. And it's not like you pushed your sister off the table. It was an accident, and you have gone long enough... Um, beating yourself up unnecessarily and um, I know that every person that is is hearing me read this survey it just wants to give you a hug and say jump in a time machine and go back and hold that little 10 year old girl and say it's okay it's okay it's not your fault it's not your fault um, I hope you hear this Elizabeth I really hope you hear this. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mega Man. And she writes, the moment my husband uh, comes out of his depression haze, it's almost literally like removing a blanket from his head. The relief in both of our hearts is the best feeling. We never know, never know how long it will last, so the feeling is even sweeter. Watching the man I love enjoy life when I know he's come from a very deep... Sk- come from... Very deep, scary depths of depression is like the warmest hug. Um, Yeah. That is... That's great that you guys can relish it instead of looking at the clock, wondering when it's going to leave. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself just another Jennifer. And um, she is uh, bisexual in her 20s. Uh was raised in a totally chaotic environment never been sexually abused um, she's been both physically and emotionally abused and She writes, I was raised by extremely religious hypocrites. My mother cursed like a sailor. My father, who was also my pastor, would disappear for weeks at a time to get high, leaving me with my mother who constantly berated and beat me. I was always made to feel bad about my weight and body odor. As an adult woman, I use men's deodorant because I perspire so much. As a child, I had no control over what products were made available to me, but apparently they weren't working." My father would spank me if he thought I did something wrong. My mother always beat me with rage. I remember being hit in the head with a Bible for talking in church. That that, oh, that just that sentence could be an awful moment. Uh, she wanted to hurt me. She wanted me to feel like I was nothing, and I did. She never once told me that she loved me until I was an adult. I still remember the moment we were standing on our back porch, and she said to me, God damn your soul. I don't remember what I said or did, but I remember her looking me straight in the eyes when she said it. After all of this, they were surprised when I tried to kill myself. They prayed for me. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My mother has softened with age. I'm currently pregnant with my first child and she has been very excited about the baby. She is busy buying things and preparing for my baby's arrival. She is being so loving, but I have no emotional attachment to her. I feel no warmth, just apathy." Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about my former boss who fired me because I wouldn't let her bully me. She was always vocal about how much she hated sex. I imagine what it would be like to watch her be tied up and raped. Darkest secrets. I thought about having an abortion just so I wouldn't have to deal with my parents or in-laws. I don't want their parenting advice. I don't want to have to explain why I no longer believe in God and will not be baptizing my child. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you to completely control another woman. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mother, the way you raised me is not okay. I don't love you. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could just lay down and just fall asleep without reliving terrible moments from childhood and sobbing quietly in the dark while my husband sleeps peacefully next to me. Um, if you shared these things with others, I talk to my husband some, but mostly my therapist. My husband comes... Mo- becomes more and more understanding every day. How do you feel after writing these things down? Exhausted. Maybe I'll get some sleep tonight. That is some heavy shit. And um, I'm sure your therapist has told you this, but uh, boy, that really sounds like uh, PTSD uh, flashbacks. And I, I, I ain't no therapist, but I think telling your mom, the way you raised me is not okay. I don't love you. I, I say not only fucking do it, but tape it and send me a copy. Maybe you will inspire me to take a trip to Chicago with a video camera. Um, but sending you a hug, Jennifer. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Daddy Issues Doubled Down. And she writes... Um, My kids do a good job at driving me insane, as kids are known to do. One of them, the middle one, tends to make a mess of her clothes and personal items. She stains and rips them so quickly. I wonder why I bother buying her stuff. The other day, I noticed she was wearing a shirt I had bought her. She felt so good wearing it, and I said to her in one breath, That shirt looks good on you. Try to keep it clean. And even as I was saying it, I realized what an awful compliment that was. Couldn't I just give her the damn compliment she deserved? Here's the clincher. A few months ago, you read an awful-some survey by by Daddy Issues uh, describing how a dad said to his daughter, you lost weight, keep it that way, and how backhanded that was. Well, that was me, and here I was doing the same thing to my own daughter. Lord, help me. It's awesome that you can see that and you want to change. That, I think, is all kids. I think... I think that is a realistic thing for people to gun for because we're all fucked up. We're all going to hurt people in one way or another, but it's what we do as we, as we grow. And I've said it before. That's why I, I caught contact with my mom. It's not because of what she did. It's because she refuses to change and she can't see how toxic she is. So, um, but you're clearly doing some introspection and trying to, trying to change. And I think that's awesome. And I want to fucking high five you. Um, and then tell you to uh, go wash my shirt. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Sed Lab, and he writes, when my stepfather's mother was dying, I didn't visit her. I grew up with her, and I didn't go. I felt like a coward. When she did die, my parents brought back stuff from her house, kitchen wares, etc. I took some Ziploc snack bags out of a uh, box back to my apartment. Now when I open the drawer and use one, I think this is how life ends.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, fuck, you couldn't make this shit up. Um I wanna read this one. You know, I'm I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna hold I'm gonna read this one another one. I I feel like we've uh had too much of this topic. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Steph and she writes when I was between eight and nine we were at my uncle's father's uh, visitation at a funeral home. Uh, It was a small enough funeral home that when I needed to use the washroom my parents let me go on my own. I was pointed down the hall uh, and to turn left. Following directions like a good girl, I turned into a darkish room, only to find myself face-to-face with an open casket and a dead woman, and I peed my pants in fear. <laughs> Needless to say, now every time we go to a funeral, the teasing from my family about my needing an escort to go to the washroom never ceases. This is... um. Awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself too lazy for a name. She writes, uh, I have, quote, suffered from binge eating for years. And she writes in air quotes because I don't know if I really believe it's a disorder. Um, It it is a disorder. Um, uh, She writes, I just think I'm greedy and eat too much. Uh, I eat in secret a lot. By the way, eating in secret is usually a sign that there's an addiction. Doing anything in super secret um, is usually not a good sign. Um, Oh, uh... I also have quite bad health anxiety. One day, I was at work and eating chocolate in the bathroom. Obviously, a great place to eat stuff, right? When I stood up and felt something cold on my leg, and immediately I panicked and thought, "Oh God, is that blood?" Obviously, not using logic to think that blood um, to think that blood would be warm. Uh, it was a piece of chocolate that had fallen down my jeans. I ate it anyway. Thank you for that. Uh, And this last one is an awfulsome moment we're going to end on. This was filled out by uh, Alexandra Alejandra. And uh, she writes, During my high school years, I would only visit my dad's house on the weekends since my parents were divorced. One particular weekend, I arrived at his place to find a stack of rental DVDs on the counter. Curious to know what they were, I picked them up and began reading the titles to quickly find Mm -hmm. out it was porn. The most memorable of which was titled, Ball gag three. (laughs) A bit horrified, I headed into town to rent some videos I actually wanted to watch, and while I was checking out of the rental place, the new girl being trained said to me, Did you know you have some overdue DVDs? Oh really, I responded. She then started reading the titles of the porn videos I had just discovered on the counter at home. The woman training her stopped her by pointing to the screen and saying, You're not supposed to read the titles down there the poor girl instantly got red, and to comfort her, I suppose, I responded with, not to worry, I already found them on the counter at home. Chuckling but mortified, I left the video store with my selections. Ah, oh, thank you. I know I thank you guys every week for the happy moments and the awfulsome moments, but they are catnip. Catnip to me. And the other stuff I love as well, but... um. You know, as you know, I, I I read a lot of dark stuff, and um, it's just nice to uh, to break it up, because it, it, it can get heavy sometimes, reading one dark thing after after another, and we need that balance. Well, I, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope that uh, if you're feeling alone before you started listening, you feel a little less alone, you feel a little bit more hope, and you know that help is out there, uh, if you're willing to uh, make that scary decision of going to get it because help is all around us and um, just know that you're not alone and thank you so much for listening and i uh, hope to see some of you at podfest
0: everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody up up i know weird is bizarrely beautiful. beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way